1: a song from a group called Count Valdemar Daninsky. It's from their 2021 album, Into the Void, and I chose the song Dusty Ideas. This is the only dusty idea you're going to get on this show. It is going to be full of fresh, exciting, new ideas. Let's get the dusty ideas out of the way.
2: (laughs) This is going to be a fun conversation. We're, We're going to be diving into something that we've never dived into before I'm, I'm trying to think we've done very very little euro horror on this show
1: In the next couple of months we're going to really pack it in
2: we are going to make up for it yes in the next couple of months and, and we're going to get things started off with i don't know when you think of euro horror who do you think of
1: um mario
2: baba <laughs> barbara Steele. i don't know Paul Nashy. We're going to have a Nashy November. This is going to be a fun one. We're going to dive into three of his films this month. He played a lot of different characters. We're going to get in Vengeance of the Zombies, 1973. I guess he plays Satan in that. The Mummy's Revenge from 75. Keep in mind these dates. Euro horror movies, they have multiple dates, multiple titles. But The Mummy's Revenge, where he plays... Again, multiple roles. That's common for his films. This one, he plays a mummy. And then 1983's Beast and the Magic Sword, where he plays a werewolf, one of the 11 or 12 Walmart Dodinsky werewolf films. And he did a few other werewolf films that weren't part of the Dodinsky film. And we're going to dive into that, kind of talk about those films, talk about some others that we've seen and, and a documentary. And just it is going to be a. A episode full of Nashi goodness.
1: That's right, and a little bit about the man himself. I mean, who is Paul Nashi for those that have not heard of him or aren't familiar with his films? I mean, he's definitely gone through a renaissance the last few years with the release of some of these movies that we've never seen on uh, Blu-ray. I'll admit it; I'm a latecomer. There are people we will mention. We will mention their books and their podcasts that were pioneers of Paul Nashi.
2: Definitely a aficionados now yes. of, of, of Paul Nashie. When you run a podcast and you write a book and you're getting asked to do audio commentary <laughs> on these Blu-ray releases, you've arrived in uh, a certain level of fandom. We'll talk about our history with Paul Nashie, but I'm I'm just as new as you are and a latecomer. And no, I did not enjoy Paul Nashie the first time I watched him. It took a, a couple viewings before I Got it. And we'll talk about that as we dive into the episode.
1: And luckily, these people have provided us wonderful resources uh, so that we can enhance our viewing and enjoy them a little
2: bit more. Absolutely.
1: This is episode 63 of the Classic Horrors Podcast. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club.
2: And I am Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com.
1: Let's call this meeting to order... For old business, Richard, we have got a nice hearty bit of old business this week. First of all, or this month, we have several new members in the Classic Horrors Club podcast Facebook group page, and we would like to take a moment to officially welcome them. Facebook did some one of its many changes where we are, new members aren't called to our attention anymore, so we have not been properly giving them a one-on-one greeting. We're going to look into whether we're going to continue with that or not. Regardless, we've got several people that we do need to officially welcome now. I will start out and welcome Susie Steger.
2: Crystal and Russell Casper.
1: I I did it this way so I can do the next one. Vincent T. Hound.
2: (laughs) I love that. Mark Brown.
1: Mario Barella.
2: John Diminish.
1: Andy Alcano.
2: Steve Smith.
1: And Brian Smith. Welcome to everyone. Thanks for joining the club. Yes. That's one way you can participate and interact with us here on the podcast and in the club is through the Facebook group page. However, we also have a phone line that you can call and leave a message. Let's go ahead and give that number. And then we're going to play messages that a couple people who took advantage of this great feature that we offer. The phone number is 616-649-2582 also known as
3: 616-649-CLUB.
1: Thank you. No (laughs) derogatory comment this week. We've got too much to get to. Wow. Okay, our first voicemail comes from
4: Chris Franklin. Hey, Jeff and Richard. It's Chris Franklin from the House of Frankenstein. Well, it's closed down for the season now, but uh, belated happy Halloween, and thanks for stopping by the party. Guys, that was fun, even though I know it was kind of an accident that you stopped by. I hope you... Got to the drive-in, okay. And if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to the House of Franklinson episode. Uh, but uh, that's episode 100 of Supermates. But I uh, just wanted to call in and tell you how much I enjoyed your Thriller episode. I really love that series. Um, Cindy got me a DVD set a few years back, fan favorites from Thriller. And honestly, that's the first time I had ever watched any of those because it was just never syndicated. And, you know, before they had been a streaming, you know, some shows you just never got to see. And it's very frustrating that you still can't see Thriller because it's like, oh, come on, man, put that thing out where everybody can watch it, right? But uh, this set's pretty good. It's got the Grim Reaper, Pigeons from Hell, the Watcher, the Hungry Glass, the Cheaters, the Incredible Dr. Marquezon, the Weird Tailor, the Purple Room, the Prisoner in the Mirror, and Well of Doom. So a lot of the episodes you guys mentioned, uh, It's I don't know what it's going for now, but if guys somebody wants a primer for Thriller, it's a good way to go. Um Really cool that you guys are covering Paul Natchy. I am not a huge Nashie guy, but I have enjoyed what I've seen, and I really enjoy that documentary that came out recently about him. Uh, So I'm fascinated to hear what your guys' takes are on the movies. And Dr. Fives, wow, you guys. (laughs) I guess I deserve it after giving you guys grief about Madhouse. But, yeah, Cindy doesn't like Dr. Fives. She indulges me on a lot of stuff, and, and she's a really, you know, she loves a lot of the same stuff I do. She's always in for a Hammer movie. She likes the Universal movies, but... Yep, not Dr. Fives, and she loves Vincent Price and everything else, so it's just that Dr. Fives. It's just too illogical for logic ass which is what uh, she got named over the years, you know. But, uh, again, great shows, guys. Uh, looking forward to listening to this nasty episode, and uh, you guys take care. See ya. Bye. Hey, Jeff and Richard, it's Chris again. I made a big boo-boo. I said you guys talked about Madhouse. You didn't talk about Madhouse. You talked about Theater of Blood. Oh, man, I get those two movies. The titles of them mixed up in my head because because Price is an actor in both. Yeah, he's a movie actor in Madhouse, but then they came out around the same time, you know, same within a few years of one another. So I get them confused. So I apologize, but uh, so I I had to. I realized as soon as I got off the phone, so I had to call back. So maybe I won't lose all my nerd cred because you know Cindy's pulling me down with that Doctor Fives thing. So I (laughs) had to call back and say yes, I know the difference between Madhouse and Theater of Blood. Sometimes, sometimes I get them mixed up. So again, thanks, guys. Keep it up. Bye.
1: Thank you, Chris. Congratulations again on your 100th episode. And we were very, very honored to be invited. Well, not invited, but to stop by and stumble upon your your party uh, on our way to the drive-in.
2: But we were invited. it just we didn't get yeah. the invitation. So.
1: True, true, true. You know, I think it's time to let rest this abominable Dr. Fibes and, and Chris's wife. Cindy, because I love to beat a dead horse, but I'm going to let that go. I know Cindy likes a lot of things that you do and has watched a lot of things. And so I just like to poke a little bit of fun, but uh, I'm going to let it go. Uh, I love how you call her logic lass. And I believe she and Carla might get along pretty
2: well. She loves vibes, but you know, there's some classic stuff that she doesn't gravitate towards she loves classic films in general, but because she's so sensitive, she has a hard time like with the Frankenstein film series or the Wolfman. Cause she's like, they're always hurting them. Dr. Five. She doesn't have a problem. Cause she's like, well, everyone who's getting hurt in those movies deserved it. So
1: and they're humans. So humans are okay. Humans, it's not so animals. animals.
2: Exactly. No, I think it's just cool and you've got somebody you can share your interest, and in, even if they don't like all of them.
1: All right. And then our next voicemail is from our friend Bill
3: Mize. Hello, my Rich. Hello, my Jeff. It's Bill Mize. And I'm calling in to offer some slightly late praise for your satanic September themed episode. Now this episode was one of my favorites, as it hits a lot of my sweet spots, the first of which being that all the movies are from the 70s, which, as a young teen during that decade, was a formidable time for forming some of my fandoms. The second is the satanic panic, which was so prevalent at the time. I believe this might have even coincided with the whole Dungeons and Dragons makes you worship Satan period, which may have happened toward the end of the decade as we headed into the new wave 80s, which formed a lot of my musical tastes. Your conversation, along with your various agreements and disagreements, had a wonderful flow, and I found myself seeking out all three movies after the show, so that I could watch them, well, eventually. Finding time to watch movies for pleasure, as opposed to watching them for doing one of my podcasts, is difficult. Yes, that's right, it's podcasts, plural now, as Monsters by the Minute is live, and the first episode dropped on Halloween weekend Saturday. Now, new episodes will be released each Saturday, and for the first season, I'll be taking a deep dive into Universal's 1932 occult classic, but not in a satanic way The Mummy, starring Boris Karloff, Zita Johan, and David Manners. I hope that you, along with your thousands of Classic Horror Club listeners, will check it out and let me know your thoughts and become regular subscribers. This podcast has been a true labor of love for me, and it's so very, very different from my first podcast, Bill Watches Movies, that I think that folks might even get a slight case of whiplash. Finally, again, I want to thank you both for all your kindness and support over the years. I do appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you both in person at Monster Bash 2022 and giving you some big dang hugs. Take care and keep talking about the movies that we love because you two are brilliant at it. I love you both. I wish you the best, and I'll see you soon. Take care.
2: Thank you, Mr. Mize, for for another wonderful uh, voicemail. Absolutely, we've got to hype up your new podcast. We've been waiting a year for this to to finally uh, debut. I regretfully have not listened to it. Everyone knows I'm so woefully behind on podcasts, but it is definitely right there at the top of the list. I, I owe Steve Turek a few episodes, and definitely I'm looking forward to this. This is something fun, something different. You've listened to the first episode. As we're recording this, it is Saturday, November 6th. Episode two has gone out. By the time this episode goes out, we will have three episodes out. What'd you think?
1: Oh, it sucks. It's bad. (laughs) Just kidding. It's really, really good. I fully intend to keep up with and be ready for the next one when it comes out each Saturday. But it's really good.
2: Just seeing that movie, I didn't get my, make it through all the, the usual universal films that I wanted to during the month of uh, October, which, you know, I guess that means I can't watch it any other 11 months out of the year, mm-hmm. right? We did watch The Mummy and because uh, that, is, that is one that Carla definitely loves, plus the Christopher Lee version as well, which uh, interestingly enough, we'll talk about a little bit about both those movies this month because um, they do kind of play a part into one of the films that we're covering indirectly. I know we've been talking a little bit online. Everyone is is excited about. Monster Bash next year. The world continues to be in a better place. And, you know, I think it's going to be a jam-packed Monster Bash. Bill should just probably set up a booth and just say like a hugging booth or something. He, He is promising a lot of hugs out there. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to getting together with everybody for Monster Bash in June, which seems like a long time away, but you know, it's going to be here before you know it.
1: Bill said a couple other things I want to comment on. He mentioned some crazy idea about actually watching movies for pleasure and like not writing about them or doing podcasts about them. That would be what, you know, I'm kidding. It. Sometimes I do just want to watch a movie and not have to think about it, not have to take notes. But I do enjoy what I do writing and doing the podcast. So that is a form of pleasure. Certain amount of work involved with it, but wouldn't be doing it if I wasn't having fun. And then the other thing, he may have confused us with someone. He said something about thousands of listeners.
2: Really? Maybe he knows something
1: we don't. I don't have any other old business. Do you? No. Let's dive in. Old business is done. Let's get to the meat of our episode. You want to start us out? Tell
2: us a little bit about Paul Nashie. Who was he? Well, you're going to hear multiple names. You will often hear the name and often see the name. of, And you know what? Okay, here's my disclaimer. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of Hispanic names in this episode. I will do my best not to to butcher these names. Jacinto Molina, uh, actually Jacinto Molina Alvarez was his birth name. Uh, he was born on September 6, 1934 in Madrid, Spain, right at the right, right before the Spanish Civil War started in earnest. He was born to uh, uh, Enrique Alvarez. Uh, who was a successful furrier prior to the Spanish Civil War? His, his family was was I wouldn't say rich, but they were they were very comfortable. They had a comfortable living, nice home, and a nice life. And unfortunately, the Spanish Civil War came along and did change a lot of that. Going in a little bit of a history lesson here, so the Spanish Civil War essentially was a war between two factions: the Republican and Nationalist factions. It went on for several years, and ultimately, the nationalists won. This resulted in a dictatorship led by Francisco Franco that lasted through the 40s and 50s and 60s, all the way up to 1975. We'll talk about, as we go through our timeline here, when we get to the mid-70s and the change that happened, but while we were under this uh, dictatorship, they really, I mean, as, as you would expect, creative freedoms were, were much more limited. It was a much a more conservative nation uh, under a dictatorship. The fact that any of those early Nashie films were made at all is, is really kind of a miracle. They, they were actually separated from the father. The family had to move at one point to the northern end of Spain when it became known that his father was on one side i can't remember exactly which side he was in in the midst of the civil war but there was a fear for his life that you know the opposition was going to capture him and execute him and so the family fled to the north to get away from the civil war but civil war eventually reached there as well and he had to leave his family behind because he was essentially tipped off that hey they're coming for you they're going to kill you he was actually thought to be dead for a period of time. He left and it was only several years later that he essentially showed up at the family doorstep. For The story that, was, that I heard, I was a little confused as to whether he, he knew that that's where he was, you know, the family was in the same spot. He knew that they were there or if it was a bit of a chance meeting. But nonetheless, they, they were reunited. And once the Spanish Civil War had had ended... They were living under a dictatorship, but they did have a life. Any any country under a dictatorship, you continue to live. It's just you're living a different life, a more constricted life. But his options were available to him. His father wanted him to be an architect. He wanted to be a weightlifter. He actually became a, a well-known weightlifter. A lot of competitions, winning a lot of awards. But he had a love for movies and. At a young age, he wanted to see a film. He was walking past a theater with his mother and he wanted to see this horror film. Absolutely not. Not going to happen. She wouldn't let him. He went back later, tried to get the theater owner to let him in. Nope, not going to happen. He eventually got in to see the movie and the movie was Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. From that moment, he was a lover of the universal horror films. And over the years, he would see all these classic movies and ultimately really played a part in this burgeoning horror movie fan to want to become a filmmaker himself. But he got into films doing some bit parts. His very first movie was in 1960, a a film called El Principe. En He played a Mongol chief. He had a bit part in the well-known film, King of Kings in 1961. And he was filming uh, an episode of I Spy in 1966. And that's when he met Boris Karloff. At that point, he he was still known, I believe, as Hacinto Molina. You know, he had an opportunity to meet Karloff. There was a particular story that he relayed about how at the end of filming... Karloff at that point was, I wouldn't say nearing death, but he was in poor health. He was having breathing problems. He was plagued with the back problems that he had. Yet he continued to act because he loved acting. He couldn't imagine a world where he wasn't acting. But getting from point A to point B was more difficult. He saw Karloff standing in the rain, waiting for a car to pick him up. And he witnessed Karloff crying. Uh, obviously in pain from a long day of filming and trying to uh, walk you know, to where the car was waiting for him. It was supposed to be there for him. I think the car was late. It's a story that Nashie would tell over the years and ultimately was the title of a 2010 documentary, The Man Who Saw Frankenstein Cry. It was a very moving moment for Nashie and, and one that inspired him as he, just a few years later, was... Starting to make films himself. He adapted the name Paul Nashi because Jacinto Molina was too Spanish sounding. And he had like apparently 30 minutes to come up with his, his stage name. He chose the name Paul after Pope Paul VI. And he chose Nashi after a famous German weightlifter, Imre Nagi, or Nagi, yeah, I think Nagi, N-A-G-Y, is how it was. Yeah, Imre Nagi. Okay, again, I'm butchering these names. Mm-hmm. That is where Paul Naschy came from. So we get to 1968. He wrote the script for the movie that was to be called The Mark of the Wolfman. It was a, a very much a traditional werewolf film that was inspired again by his love for the Universal horror films. The thought was to have Lon Chaney Jr. play the part of the werewolf, but He was way too sick at that point, wasn't going to be able to travel. And I can't imagine him being able to pull off the role at that point in his career. So Nashi was essentially given the part by default. Production had started. They needed somebody to play the Wolfman. And there was Nashi, and he was able to get the part. Now, this movie has over the years become known as Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. That was its American release title, essentially as a marketing ploy. There's an animated sequence that's been tacked on at the beginning to explain that the Frankenstein family is now known as the Wolfstein family. You just got to go with it. It makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, certainly Mark of the Wolfman is is a much better title, but Frankenstein bloody Terror is is how uh, the movie has been available for so many years here in the States. You and I have both seen this movie. Now this is not one we're going to cover full fledged, but You watched it, you covered it on your on your blog this past week. And I thought, well, you know, I've got the movie as well. I wanted to go ahead and and catch it. The copy I had was actually a really good print. I got it off of YouTube. I don't know if it's still there or not. With Euro horror movies, if you've never seen a Euro horror movie or if you have, you know they are unique. The best way to see them is with the original language and subtitles. But unfortunately, more times than not, and for many, many years, the only version of of many Euro horror films have been dubbed versions. And that can throw you off because if you watch a dubbed version, you know that sometimes the voices don't match the characters. Some of the dialogue sometimes doesn't seem like it really makes a lot of sense. I think it can change your impression of of the film. Having heard Nashi's real voice, And then watching a dubbed version, and then the actor they choose to have Nashi, it does throw you off. I actually really enjoyed this movie, you know, considering it's his first and considering it's the first of ultimately 11 or 12 of the Daninsky werewolf films. I like the origin that they gave the, the werewolf, I liked the story. Some of the editing was fairly haphazard, it seems like you know, sequence of events happening, bang, 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 you know, you blink your eye and all of a sudden you've missed, you know, several days of the storyline. As with any werewolf film, it always seems like there's way more full moons than there should be. You just got to go with the flow. I enjoyed it. Definitely. I I hope that this one does ever get a Blu-ray release. I would definitely add it, but I'm thankful for the digital copy that I have now because it is a, it's a good print. I just wish it was in its original language. Did you enjoy it? I sure did.
1: It's interesting. He's set some tropes. I mean, there's the werewolf legend, and he takes a lot of some of those things from Universal and from Hammer, but he adds some of his own. And as we go on and we see other later werewolf movies, he really sticks with those tropes. And I think the biggest one I'm thinking of is that he needs to be killed by someone that truly loves him, someone that would be willing to die for him. And that's a little bit new. He likes that. He, Sticks with it through everyone I've seen
2: anyway. We should say the origin and virtually every one of his films seems to be different. It's you know, the same character, but they're not really part of the same series. It's like almost each film is almost like a standalone film in, in a way, or could be treated that way. And some Yeah, people, there are
1: parts though that like sometimes I think, okay, that picks up, but not maybe from the one before that, but a different one we eventually learned in the series that it's something that has plagued his family for centuries. So, you know, these could be Valdemar Daninsky's from different points in time. I don't know. But yeah, it's probably a futile exercise to try to connect them all. I want to come back to the full moon thing because I actually noticed that it's not as obvious in some of the ones we watch that every night is a full moon. To me, that didn't stand out as it does in some werewolf movies
2: it did kind of feel like the start of a series even though more times than not right he what he dies at the end of the film the next film he's alive again or whatever i mean that's really no different than the universal horror film series where he's cured at the end of house of dracula then two years later oh, he's not cured anymore you know he just okay you just go with the flow You, you enjoy these movies for for what they are and and he's well known for the the Daninsky films. And I think that you know, that's why we covered one officially that we'll talk about towards the end of the show. This one I thought was just fun because you watched it and covered it on your blog. Yeah. You're covering a lot of other Nashi films during the course of the month, which I think is fun. I, I think I did the same thing with Lionel Atwell month. I covered it some extra mm-hmm. stuff. You inspired me to watch this movie this past week. And I have a feeling... I will watch a few more nashy films as the month progresses. If Carla goes to bed early on a particular night, I'll probably stick one in because I have certain films to still to watch. That movie was released in 1968. In 1969, he married Elvira Primavera, and they were married for 40 years. They were married until his death in 2009, had two sons, Bruno and Sergio. That is something Carla appreciated. As oftentimes with musicians or actors, there's multiple marriages and mistresses and all sorts of stuff. He was a family man. He was very passionate about his family. He's very passionate about his films, his love and appreciation for the classic horror films. And I think that's something to appreciate uh, about him. There's a lot of this is covered in that documentary, The Man Who Saw Frankenstein Cry. The movie's An Hour and 17 Minutes. There's some fun anecdotes on there from people like John Landis, his wife and, and his two sons are on there as well. A lot of fun clips and a lot of other people offering thoughts it does really show the, the love and appreciation that Nashie had for the films that he made. I'm going to go
1: ahead and mention what my Bible for this episode was, and that's the book Human Beast, the films of Paul Nashie by Troy. Yeah, Hall. we
2: should mention that. The Nashi Cast podcast set the bar for any Nashi discussion on podcast. Rod Barnett and Troy Gwynn, they were the originators of that. And then, of course, author Troy Howarth did Human Beast, the films of Paul Nashi, which I referenced, and so did you. Troy has written quite a few books. Uh, he certainly loves hero horror and highly, highly recommend uh, listening to the Nashi Cast podcast and getting this book if you have a love and desire for Nashi. By the time you get to the end of our show,
1: there are a couple of things that set Paul Nashi apart from other people in the genre that we know and love and celebrate. I think what is unique for him is that he did everything he wrote, he directed, he produced, he acted. And not many of our horror icons have done everything the way he has. Then the other thing we talk about his horror movies. I mean, that's what we're doing. He had an absolute devotion to it. But his career didn't begin and end with that. He there are a lot of other types of movies in his career that he did, which, you know, we won't even be addressing. And you mentioned he loved his family. I don't know when he had family time. I mean, some of these years he's got five and six movies coming out,
2: especially the time period of 1973. I think, you know, he was cranking out a, a tremendous amount of films in that given year. Crime dramas and 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 dramas and television work and stuff that he was involved in from a production standpoint, but not actually involved in in front of the camera. We know him for you know his horror movies, but he did do so much more. Nineteen sixty nine, he makes or maybe he doesn't make his second werewolf film, The Knights of the Wolfman. Man. Nashi seems to be the only one out there who was aware that this film was made. It was never completed. Supposedly, the only copy of the film was destroyed. What, car accident or some nonsense like that? I don't know that this movie ever was made. Nashi claims that it was, but nobody else has ever surfaced and said that it was made. Maybe they filmed a scene or something. It was never finished. I don't know. There's a lot of mystery around that film, and I don't think it'll ever surface. That's where we say 11 or 12 Dodinsky films, 11... That are official question mark on the 12th. 1969, uh, we should mention Assignment Terror, which is the next film in the Danisky series. This, of course, is the movie with Michael Rennie playing a space alien towards the end of his life. Michael Rennie, best known for The Day the Earth Stood Still. I've seen this one a couple years ago. It's good. It's not great. It's a little odd mishmash of ideas. Have you seen this one? I have. And I I like
1: it a lot. It's not a good movie by any means. I mean, uh, technically, but it is just fun. I mean, when you've got an alien whose idea to enact his plan is to revive basically the universal monsters. I love it
2: it certainly is odd in a lot of ways but i don't know just the fact that michael rennie is in it elevates it even though it no it's not michael rennie's best film and his days of the day the earth stood still were long gone by this point but still fun to see him next i guess technically around 1970 we've got a couple of other wolfman films or Deniski films we have fury of the wolfman and werewolf versus the vampire woman Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman was my first Nashi film. And uh, I saw that courtesy of a dubbed public domain print. It's a public domain film, the dubbed version. And it was, oh gosh, 15 years ago, maybe, give or take. I bought the film on a double feature DVD and I believe it was paired off with The Screaming Skull. It's been a while since I've seen it. I know there, there is a vampire woman in there. I've heard some people say it's one of the better ones in the series. I remember enjoying it. For whatever reason, I didn't gravitate towards more Nashy after that. I couldn't get into it. And as I had tried other Euro horror movies around that time, at that point, I was like, you know what? I just I don't think I'm I'm a fan of Euro horror. And then some of these movies started coming out on Blu-ray. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to give Nashi a try again. Everyone keeps talking about him. And I keep hearing this about Nashi and that about Nashi, And I can't even remember the first film that I watched and said, you know, maybe I'll give this another try. And then I enjoyed it. You may like something at one point in your life. And as you get older, sometimes you like the same thing you did when you were 12 years old. Sometimes what you liked when you were 12, you're not going to like later in life. Other things... Sometimes it's the quality of the print. Sometimes it's just where you are. Sometimes it's the viewing experience. And I think that's what it was with Nashi. I think I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. But now, here in 2021, I've seen a lot more Euro horror. I know that I have to be in the mood for it. It's not like a universal film where I can plug that in and I'm just immediately good to go. I've got to be in the right frame of mind for Euro horror but I appreciate it a lot more, and I enjoyed it a lot more than I used to, and that's exactly where I'm at with Nashi. My love for him in 2021 wasn't there. I think even three years ago, I I, I wouldn't have counted my fan, myself a Nashi fan three or four years ago, but definitely am now. And I think when the the Paul Nashi collections came out from Shout Factory. I jumped on those because I was like, I'm not going to get left behind. Like with the Vincent Price collection went out of print. And I think that's the, that may have been when I bought those two sets and I started watching the films, I was like, okay, I'm appreciating it. These are good prints. They're subtitled. And I'm just, I'm enjoying these films a lot more than I did just a few years earlier.
1: My history is similar to yours. I tried watching some Nashie films many years ago. I don't even remember. And I went to the ones that at least at that time were the big ones, Horror Rises from the Tomb, Count Dracula's Great Love, Hunchback of the Morgue. I, I say big ones. I guess maybe those were the ones mostly
2: available at that time. Count, Count Dracula's Great Love was the second one I watched. And that's what turned me off. I remember I bought the Elvira copy, yeah. Elvira's movie, Macabre copy of it. And that movie bored me to death. And I'm like, I think I'm done with Nashi.
1: Yeah, so I was the same way. In fact, to this day, Count Dracula's Great Love is my least favorite. I I think I gave it only a 3 out of 10. Now, I am very eager to revisit those this month as we go through Nashi November because I want to see if my tastes have changed. So, you know, basically those three in like you, I was kind of turned off. But then I'm going to add another name into this uh, mix who I've mentioned before. John Kitley from Kitley's Crypt was always a big Nashi fan, always talking about him, posting about him. And I had a conversation with him. I think it was at Monster Bash. And I'm like, all right, you know, you've beaten me into submission. I want to give it a try. And he kind of recommended where I should start and what I should watch. Somehow I got back into, I don't think it was even right then. I think it was as these things started coming out and I started watching them on Blu-ray, like you say, The Good Prince, and I love them. I consider myself a Nashi fan. Unlike you, I have always kind of been a Euro horror fan. And that's one thing to remember as you watch some of these, if you're rating them on Paul Nashie, think about, well, these are characteristics of any Euro horror, really. I think they go hand in hand. I don't know that I suppose you could like Paul Nashie films and not like your horror in general, but if you like your horror, I think you pretty much will like Paul Nashie. Yeah.
2: We should mention the fact that these movies are being made at all is a miracle because, you know, Spain was under a dictatorship. It was a very conservative nation. They had guidelines that they had to follow. Sometimes certain ideas and things that they wanted To incorporate, they were, they got pushback on Frankenstein's Buddy terror, for example. I think it was originally set in Spain and they kind of had to change the setting and say, okay, well, that thing wouldn't happen in Spain. We wouldn't have werewolves in Spain. Make that happen somewhere else. That was some of the guidelines that they had to kind of work around.
1: This thing I find fascinating because one of the characteristics of your horror that I always think of is the sex. Boobies, you know? Interestingly, the any of that you see in the Nashi films weren't ever seen in the Spanish versions. They had what were called clothed versions yeah. that were made in Spain. And then they shot additional scenes for other countries that I've seen it, you know, called unclothed or the uncovered editions. So yeah. if you're if you're seeing any skin in a Nashi film, it's probably not the original Spanish version.
2: We're in the early 70s here. The uh, Daninsky films, he's kind of cranking them out here. We've got Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf, 1971. I saw that one years ago. Curse of the Devil in 73, which going on the list of films that I've seen, I think, yeah, Curse of the Devil in 73 was released in 73. There's some other films around this time frame. 73 was such a prolific year. Horror Rises from the Tomb one of his more well-known films, and I've seen that one, and I've enjoyed it. That's, I believe, on one of the Paul Naschy collection Blu-rays from Shout Factory. Hunchback of the Morgue is another one from 1973. Orgy of the Living Dead, also known as The Hanging Woman from 73. And the first movie that we're going to talk about from 1973, Vengeance of the Zombies.
5: I order you, Gloria Irving. I order you to arise and obey me. Obey me. Have you ever heard of voodoo? Of the resurrection of corpses to serve Satan? Drops of human blood. Corpses that have disappeared. Voodoo. Voodoo. Hawkins, here in London, someone is resurrecting corpses, creating zombies. Yes, zombies to wreak vengeance. Zombies which murder, which torment, which kill. vengeance of the zombies will initiate you in the darkest secrets of hindu conjury you will witness the unknown rites of voodoo in an orgy of blood and horror Vengeance of the Zombies, with Paul Naschy in A Dual Creation, and the presentation of Romy, Myrta Miller, and Vic Winner as Lawrence. A fascinating drama of ancestral and ancient rites in today's modern world of London. Vengeance of the Zombies.
2: When her father is murdered, Elvira Irving takes a trip to the country to visit an Indian mystic, Krishna. There, she becomes embroiled in mystery and mayhem as a cloaked figure raises the dead and leads the vengeance of the zombies.
1: This was not my first time viewing. I had seen this before. I thought I had written about it, but I had not. I actually found my notes from my first time viewing and resurrected those, watched it, added some new notes to it. So hopefully that's something I'll be posting on my website this month. But I like this movie quite a bit. It is a little bit of a mishmash, a lot of funky stuff going on doesn't make a lot of sense at some points but I really like it it has a look it has a quality that is a a notch above and maybe it's the print it's an excellent crisp clear blu-ray print I have a question for you we haven't yet gotten to a film that Paul Nash directed he has written and he has starred in everything we've talked about so far I, I have come to believe that it is the combination of him as the writer and whoever the director is that really, I mean, this sounds common sense, but it, it, when you start looking at them in bulk, I think that's really what sets some movies apart from the others. I think there are directors that are maybe more in tune with him or maybe even influence a little bit of their own vision to improve what Nashi had written. But I do believe that the director Leon Klamovsky Deserves a lot of credit for *Vengeance of the Zombies*.
2: I think, yeah, the, the first two films we're going to cover. Leon klamovsky Carlos Ared, in multiple films, obviously that they that they you know worked with Nashi on, and I think, yeah, you, you, there's a working relationship that develops. And I know that Leon klamovsky is is well known, not just for Nashi, but in Euro horror. I that is a name I. Have heard rod barnett say quite a few times i think on the commercial for the nasty cast he had 76 film credit he did some spaghetti westerns a few dollars for django i've never heard that title before but that just sucks me in that's one of the gazillion django movies that probably don't have anything to do with the character they just use the name because they knew it would sell the movie Vampires Night Orgy, which is a title that I will mention numerous times because it seems like everybody was in that film over the course of the movies that we did, as well as doing like Werewolf vs. the Vampire Woman, Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf, The People Who Own the Dark, A Dragonfly for Each Corpse, a movie called The Dracula Saga, which I remember seeing because I think I have the Sinister Cinema version of it. I feel like I need to revisit that because that my viewing of that, it was just very haphazard. It seemed like that's a very odd film, but it seems like it's a movie that other people enjoy. So I feel like maybe I missed something. I didn't hate it. It just, it was a movie that just didn't like, eh, that's not my favorite, but it's been on my radar for a long time simply because the title is so cool. I agree. I think that there's, you get a working relationship. Paul Nashi. As an actor, that's how he credits himself. But he credits himself as Jacinta Molina when he's a writer or director. He's always got a a passion, I think, for these movies. And so when he's working with a a familiar director, they're just in sync. That obviously will help the movie overall flow. I think with this particular film, you've got a good story. I I, I like the overall premise. I actually like the execution for the the most part. Nashi. Decides to play three roles in this film. Plays the um, character of Krishna and Kintaka and Satan, uh, essentially. You know, I liked the makeup work from Miguel and Marucci Sese. I think the the, the makeup work on Satan was fun. I think the scarred Kintaka was good. Uh, the zombies were a little lackluster, but not necessarily out of sync with the Dawn of the Dead. Or, you know, if you look at some of the makeup work from the zombies in that movie, it's not as graphic as we expect zombies to be now.
1: Well, um, these are voodoo zombies, not like right. walking dead zombies. Which
2: I think if if you're, if, you know, it, it works better with voodoo zombies I love Dawn of the Dead. You know, that's a, a classic, obviously. But, you know, some of the makeup work in that movie is is uneven. Some, some of the zombies are much better than others. I still think that from a, zoo, from a voodoo zombie perspective, I mean, compared to the other makeup work, it didn't stand out for me. I didn't yeah. hate it. It didn't ruin the movie for me. It just wasn't. Oh, no, I
1: don't good. think it's bad. It's not like they tried to do something and it looks bad. They just didn't do much. They like had yeah. a pale kind of blue yeah. color to them is all
2: very low key. Yes. Yes is the best way to do it. I'm going to just jump to this right here, though. The the one part about this movie that can ruin it for somebody. And, and, you know, things that I've read, a lot of people don't like this movie because of the music. The music is by Juan Carlos Calderon, and it is porn music. <laughs> it's the best way to describe it. It is a funky 70s music that can be very jarring. It is, more times than not, out of sync with the action on the screen. It's not atmospheric from what you're seeing. Nashi didn't like it. He did not like the music. He had hoped that when the movie would eventually get released, especially on like DVD, he was hopeful that the music would be replaced. That says something, that when, when Nashi didn't care for the music in this, it... I suppose that there's, it adds a certain crazy charm as you're watching this music. But for me, I think that's, every time I viewed it, it always just kind of stands out. And I'm like, there's some good suspenseful scenes in this film that end up almost being ruined by the, the crazy, you know, 70s porn music that Calderon does. I can get that if someone loves it, for me, it hurts the film a little bit.
1: This is weird. I, I mean, I acknowledge that twice I've seen this. That hasn't bothered me. I wasn't even aware that it was like a thing until I believe the commentary on Mummy's Revenge, when Troy Howard talks about the music in this movie. I don't know why it didn't bother me. Not only is this like you're a horror, Paul Nash. This is also seventies. You get a lot of funky music in the in movies you do. era, and.
2: Because 70s is kind of your vibe, you know, that's what you tune into. So you've seen a lot of 70s movies. This music isn't as jarring to you because you're just kind of used to having sometimes some music like that in some of these films. And I've seen my fair share of 70s movies as well. And I think sometimes this music like this, like a lot of people hate the music in the opening sequence of Dracula, 80, 1972, right? I kind of think it's okay, because it sets the vibe for the 1970s. I don't have a problem with some of the music from the satanic rites of Dracula, because again, that really funky opening. Now, yes, I Mm -hmm. totally get it. It doesn't give me a Dracula vibe in any way, shape, or form, but it doesn't ruin it for me. But for other people, it does. So I can see that Music is subjective, you know, and if you don't have a problem with it, then you're not going to notice it. It's not going to pull you out of the moment. Like, you get a taste of something different, and then all of a sudden, it's like, bow-chicka-wow-wow kicks in, and <laughs> it's just kind of like, whoa, that was kind of throws me. Nonetheless, there was a lot up in this movie that I enjoyed. I love the opening crypt sequence. I thought that was a lot of fun. It kind of set the pace. There was some unevenness. Yeah, I think the the Elvira sequence with with Satan. I really did feel like I was getting ready to watch a porn movie there, like a really you know bad porn. But then like you had the, I think it was almost I think right in that same scene or or similar because there was a lot of sequences where you were in the, for lack of a better term, Satan's chamber. Right, you know where Satan and the the voodoo zombies were there. There was the really intense chicken scene. I immediately thought I was like think. God, Carlos, watching her head would have exploded because that made me uncomfortable. You,
1: that had to be real, wasn't it? I well, mean, it was. It had oh. to
2: be. Chop off the head of a chicken, and the chicken's sitting there, and the legs are going like crazy, and I'm like, oh my lord, that's that's intense, you know. Other people, it's not going to bother. You've got the girl wearing the uh, the mask that looks like she's the unknown comic from the Gong Show. <laughs> 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 you know that really weird. Like almost like square mask that she's wearing. I That's what I thought of. I thought, that's the unknown comic. That was kind of weird. There was some odd editing in the movie that sometimes scenes would just really kind of jump around. But again, that's kind of a style. And I'm used to that. It didn't really throw me. It just whenever it happens, sometimes it's kind of like, did I miss something? You know, And I know that's just common for, for Euro horror. So you, you just you do kind of get used to that. But I did like the I like the overall story. I like the idea of the character of Krishna and being under control. And I like the reveal of exactly why his brother was the way he was. I like that. I like that little twist that we get. I guess we'll mention some of the cast here. The character of Elvira was played by Romy. Only 18 credits. This was really her biggest movie, besides. The Killer with a Thousand Eyes. Keep in mind, I might be missing something because a lot of these movies were in Spanish titles. I might be missing something big. Myrta Miller played the character of Kala. She was in 85 films, including Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf, Count Dracula's Great Love, and a Santo movie that actually a few people were, were in, Santo versus Dr. Death from 1973. I don't have that one. It's one of the 70s santo films when things were getting a little funky for santo (laughs) maria costi plays the character of elsie 90 credits lots of tv work in recent years she was also in killer with a thousand eyes the dracula saga night of the sorcerers exorcismo night of the seagulls part of the blind dead film series which is something i think we should cover on this show at some point i love that film series dragonfly for each corpse another nasty film that she was in The character of McMurdo was played by Luis, not even going to attempt the last Mm -hmm. name, C-I-G-E-S. 179 film credits, including Horror Rises from the Tomb, The Dracula Saga, Vampire's Night Orgy, and Night of the Seagulls. This movie was released in 1973 in in Spain, June 27th in USA, December 31st. This is probably, from this time period, one of the more well-known Nashi films, And uh, I can see why. it's a fun story and and Nashie playing three characters. I think it's a good plot. I think it was well made. I think the ending was odd, not giving away the the ending, but the very last scene, you had this big climactic event and the police show up and then everyone just leaves. (laughs) And that very last scene, it's like, Okay, there's a lot of dead bodies and everyone, everyone leaves like the cops leave, you know, everyone just gets in the car and then bang, crazy porn music comes back in and that's it. End of the movie. And I'm like, it was a little odd for me. I was like, shouldn't somebody be staying? And well, we'll just leave the house alone and we'll never go back. I don't know. It was kind of funny ending. I enjoyed it. I I did. I enjoyed this one. Not my favorite of the three that we're going to cover. But definitely, you know, for a third time viewing, I I can say that if there was anything about this movie that that I would change, it would most definitely be the music.
1: A couple other things I want to point out again, probably going back to the director. The dream nightmare sequence is what sticks with me about this movie. I kind of apply that to the whole movie, like instead of thinking, oh, wow, that's a really bizarre, funky piece of this movie. That's how I. Think of the entire movie, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, So that whole sequence is just fantastic. There's an earlier sequence where Elvira's in bed, and this is right before she discovers her father's been killed. And this Gloria that has been resurrected from the dead creeps into her room and is leaning over her bed. And it's Elvira's point of view from the camera. And this Gloria is leaning over, and it's just so surreal her head is like kind of bobbing a little bit you I don't know if you remember that but yeah that was really an excellent shot the whole thing of how this cloaked figure gets people to slit their throats and then he collects the blood pours it on wax figures and lights it on fire and that's what raises the dead I guess sort of so there's a lot of creative shots of people cutting their own throats one was like just from a can of pop or something you know he used it to cut his throat that was interesting then the the one with the station agent at the train station that was really gory when he cut his own throat yeah. uh we talked about the chicken yeah i think those were the scenes that that stood out i i think i like this more than you i haven't really decided which my favorite one is there's one of the other two that we're going to talk about i like equally as well and maybe something you say will Persuade me to choose a favorite, or I may not be able to. I may have to rate two equally.
2: I mean, I'll just say this now: I enjoyed all three films. There were there was none of these films that I didn't enjoy.
1: Your horror is so weird because there are some of them that I do believe are better in horrible dubbed bad picture cuts, yeah. and then there are others that are so much better. There's no rhyme or reason to me. I like sometimes the, the crisp clear cut, and then sometimes I don't. I don't know if it goes with like the seedier the movie, the better it is in that sort of rough cut. I, I'm not sure. I can't say I favor one or the other. It, it's a mix.
2: When you're dealing with somebody like Nasty, I think, yeah, it's like, what voice do they use, right? Because if you see like a dubbed version, it can be a bit jarring when you see, which is like it was with Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. It's like, you know, I saw the dubbed version and uh, it doesn't sound like Nashi. You know, I know what Nasty's voice sounds like, But that is something that Nashi never really learned to speak English. You know, in all the years that he did the films, I mean, that's something he never really learned. He did speak English in one of his later last films this particular time period. No, he was, you know, it was Spanish, so they had to do dubbing and it wasn't him doing the dubbing. I think we will certainly have this same conversation next month when we dive into our topic for next month, because I know. At least one of the movies we're going to see is dubbed. Christopher Lee does not use the voice. Somebody else speaks the voice, and that he has such an iconic voice.
1: that it for Vengeance of the Zion?
2: I think so. I think we both liked it. You a little better than I, um, but I would still recommend it. Uh, I'd recommend the the Shout Factory copy. As we said, it's part of the Paul Nasci Collection Volume 1. Take a break, and when we come back, we will enter the world of the mummy.
5: something bitter is bothering you. You can tell me what it is, my dear. Helen, I know how to understand you. My father is a paralytic and I'm responsible. I told father not to go. The weather was awful that night. But he insisted that he accompany me. When we returned afterwards, the horses went wild and father was dragged beneath them. Helen... You're not to blame. Believe that. Everything was written. Finally, I shall have my eternal liberty. Soon, my beloved Amarna will be by my side once more. A pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. The foundation never dreamed of such a valuable piece. It's a discovery of world importance. And we're the ones responsible for it. I'm sure that the papyrus scroll you found will give us the answer to this mystery. We'll study it in London. It will be fascinating work. And Dr. Douglas will collaborate with us.
3: Ah! Ah!
2: Centuries after a brutal pharaoh was mummified in Egypt, one of his descendants, Assad Bay, brings the creature back to life in London. Bay himself becomes a suspect in a series of murders, but little does Scotland Yard know that he's merely leading the Mummy's Revenge.
1: Richard, before we dig into Mummy's Revenge, we mentioned a couple of other movies in this same time period, but we didn't really say if we had seen them or not. What other ones of Paul Nash have you seen between or around Vengeance of the Zombies and the Mummy's Revenge?
2: I had seen Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf or the Wolfman. I know it's seen multiple titles. Um, I had it and then I don't have it anymore. I have a copy of it, a digital copy, but it's like missing the opening credits. So I don't know if it's missing anything else. It's like I have it as a like a temporary Hoping that the Blu-ray gets a release soon. I remember enjoying that movie, though. I've seen Horror Rises from the Tomb, uh, which I enjoyed. Mentioned Count Dracula's Great Love, which I would like to revisit a better print. I have a copy of a movie that he did. It was released, I guess, in July of 73. I'm not sure of the title. Crimes of, is it Petiot or Petiot? Oh, you do have that? I have an MP4 of it or a digital copy. Huh, it.
1: <laughs> it's on my list to watch this month and I, it is on YouTube. That might be the same thing you've got.
2: It's where I got it from was okay. from YouTube. Yeah, I It's, it's uh, piqued my interest. So I haven't seen that one yet though. Hunchback of the Morgue, which I have seen. Orgy of the Living Dead, also known as The Hanging Woman. That one just got released on Blu-ray. Who put that out? That was a different label, I think.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I have it.
2: Yeah, it's uh, in the I- other room. I enjoyed it. Not one of Nashi's best. I don't think he's got a big part in that one, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Curse of the Devil, which I think it was made or released right around the same time as, as the our next film. I have that one on DVD. I remember seeing it and I enjoyed it, but I can't really remember anything specific about it. It wasn't my favorite of the Doninsky films. Uh, and then, yeah, that takes us up to the mummy's revenge.
1: Okay, I want to um, just mention a couple others. I have not seen, and I assume they're riffs on Jallo with names like Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll and Dragonfly for each corpse. Haven't seen either of those that are coming up in the queue, uh, but he did make, I, I assume, just murder mysteries, maybe? Or I've seen both of like, those
2: actually. Oh. Yeah, I I guess I had those after The Mummy's Revenge. Oh,
1: okay. Sorry. The other one that was definitely before is Seven Murders for Scotland Yard. There's actually a copy of that on YouTube. Oh, really? That uh, supposedly came out about the time of Werewolf versus a Vampire Woman. I'm going to try to uh, see if I can watch that.
2: Seven Murders from Scotland Yard, you say?
1: Yep. Seven Murders for Scotland Yard.
2: I enjoy Dragonfly for each corpse better than Blue Eyes. Hmm. Dragonfly kind of had an interesting premise with the leaving the dragonfly that the crime. I'm not a big fan of Giallo. Uh, I have tried that numerous times, and it just doesn't click with me. You eventually liked Suspiria. I did. I've tried Giallo numerous times, though, and it's just it's not clicking. That's not to say if someone recommends a film to me that I wouldn't give it a shot. But, you are uh, so
1: closed-minded, Richard. Ah. Uh, <laughs>
2: If someone says, give it a shot, I'll give it a shot. Maybe we'll be doing a Giallo episode two years from now, and I'll say, I love it. Okay, I guess we'll throw some other movies around because I guess the time frame on these things. So Yeah, and I'll
1: just throw in there that in a 12-month period, he did 10 films. Yes. And, you know, some sat on the shelf in Spain for years. So release dates, production dates, it gets all very confusing.
2: It does. Yeah, so there's The Devil's Possessed. Fury of the Man, i have seen i like it better than a lot of other people exorcism or exorcismo i enjoyed that one he, you know nashi plays basically the the priest i think performed the exorcism that was a fun flick and then the werewolf and the yeti movie which ah uh, that one i you know i was hoping to like more than i did ultimately there were some weird things in that one
1: what was the deal he had with the Yeti? Because in some of the movies he's aware of because of an encounter with the Yeti, do they play up on that at all? Or? I
2: think so, but I think the, the Yeti wasn't done well in this movie. It really comes across feeling more like a guy rather than a monster. I think we'll stop there because I've, I've got a, a string of other movies on the list of films that I have, but I have not seen. So unless there's anything else from you, Nope. That's from around this time period. I think we can dive into The Mummy's Revenge.
1: This was Nash's only widescreen film, but it was the cheap version of widescreen called Technoscope, where you got the, I wouldn't say illusion, but it does look like widescreen, but the film stock was cheaper to process. I don't think it holds up to manipulate it in other ways. It doesn't look as good as true widescreen. This is a very different mummy. First of all, the pharaoh that is mummified deserves it. Usually that's a sympathetic character. Well, we don't want to see that happen. And he's been wrongly accused or punished. This one's a bad guy. So he deserves to be mummified. And he's also the most brutal mummy that I think we've ever seen. Horribly violent and a a real true powerful force. What do you... Think about that different take on the actual mummy than we've seen in the other movies.
2: Supposedly, Nashi had not seen the Karloff or Christopher Lee version. Some people question that because they feel like the way that he portrayed the mummy being much more agile was very similar to how Christopher Lee kind of played him in the mummy from 59. But Nashi does say that he didn't see those films until later, which is very possible When you think of like the universal mummy films, you know, Karloff, we see so little of, but then, you know, when you see the rest of the mummy films, most of which had Lon Chaney Jr. in there, it's the shambling mummy, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas Christopher Lee played the mummy much more, as I said, much more agile, much more active. And then the rest of the Hammer mummy films are uneven, kind of all over the place, but, eh, you know, not as... I don't think they're as agile as Christopher Lee played them in in that first film. Yeah. He's much more brutal and he's not the good guy. He's not, there's no sympathy for him. Really. You don't, you don't feel sympathy for this mummy. You felt a lot of sympathy, I think in the, in the Karloff film, because it's a love story. You can tell that he wants to reunite with his lost love. Whereas with the mummy in 59, there's still sympathy for him because again, it's that similar story even though, you know, with the Karloff version, you're, you're catching it from his human personification, whereas in the 59 Mummy, it's from the mummy itself, the monster. I thought this was a good way to go. I mean, I love mummy films. It's fun to see a different take on a familiar story. You know, we get Nashi again in a dual role. We get him as uh, Amenhotep and Assad Bey. I think the mummy makeup works. I think his is visually. I think it's very good. Miguel Cese does the, the makeup again. So I think what we, we see in this is a, a very believable mummy, a mummy who talks, which is also a little jarring. I liked it. I, I really did. A monster that we're so familiar with, but setting him in a different type of the story was sort of, but then it was different enough. And then a very different mummy. And uh, I think it, it worked very much for this film.
1: Another thing I didn't say uh, is that Paul Nash, he's very, I want to say stocky, but to be honest, I don't know if that was his muscle from weightlifting, but he's uh, a chunk and usually mummies are tall and thin. So that was very different. I think that was harder for me to get used to than I know, agree. any of his actions or anything, but I like it.
2: He's got a very big barrel chest. And-,
1: and not only the makeup being good, this time I noticed the attention to detail when they were mummifying him and the little pieces of cloth they were laying on, they put... Quite a bit of detail into that. And I liked that it, this was the first time that I've really thought, you know, you think of a mummy bandages wrapped, you know, until the roll runs out, you know, (laughs) but this, they were like laying strips of cloth on him and it, it didn't look so much like that kind. I didn't know if that was any more authentic or not, but I liked that it was different
2: visually this is a really well-made film maybe some some budgetary hits you know i think like the opening sequence i wish was maybe a little more expansive
1: speaking of the opening and the sets so i have two thoughts on these sets they're either very cheap or they're very artistic because of the way the director carlos ared filmed some of the scenes i'm going to go with the artistic They're good looking sets, but they're like they seem kind of small. And like above, you can see like the blue painting, which it doesn't look like the it's part of the set. It looks like the warehouse that's behind it or something. So yeah. Did you hear what those sets were from?
2: Some of the sets were from Anthony and Cleopatra, the 72 film with Charlton Heston. I guess on one hand, adds a level of credibility, right? I mean, you're getting some some sets. I think it was how they were used, obviously probably not used as well as they probably were. And Anthony and Cleopatra, I have to admit, I've never seen that movie. I'm a big Charlton Heston fan, and I've seen so many of his other classics. The movie was well made. It felt like it needed just maybe a little bigger budget so we could get some more expansive and perhaps more believable sets. Uh, the music here actually was really good. I think it was much more appropriate than what we got in Vengeance of the Zombies, Um, Alfonso Santisteban, But it's still a little jarring at times. There was some music that came from other films. Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory, for example, was was thrown in. But, I mean, he had like 60 composer credits. I, I do feel like it was a better soundtrack than what we got with Vengeance of the Zombies. I think Troy Howarth said that as well, didn't he, in the commentary Yeah. Uh, I I, I watched this one with the commentary. I
1: did too. Yeah. No, he liked the music in Vengeance of the Zombies, but this one, yeah, he went on and on about how he wishes he could place all the movies that the music comes from.
2: You know, this didn't have this uh, like an animated opening.
1: I love that. Yes. Where they take a, we may have talked about that before where there's a drawing or a painting and then it's, the the live action behind it fits and it dissolves into the live
2: action. Yes. I thought that was a a, a wonderful transition that they did. Supposedly there's a nude version of this, of this movie. Well, (laughs) yes, everyone's nude. There's a film with nudity, but apparently may no, no longer exist. It has yet to resurface.
1: Yeah. And if you're watching and there's a scene, these newlyweds are killed by the mummy that is a different quality. And that's because it did not originally exist in the Spanish version that was added for other countries. And it's not, I mean, I think that was Troy's point. It's not perfect opportunity to be the unclothed version and it's not, but in any type of version, it didn't appear in the Spanish cut of the film.
2: Uh, The movie's made in six weeks, which I wouldn't say that's a rush production. I mean, six weeks for this time period and with a lower budget, Nashi had a, a fascination for Egyptian history and the pharaohs and, and the culture. And so I think adding to the fact his love for Universal and, and Hammer films, even though he claims not to have seen it, there are certain elements where I think maybe he had and maybe he's just misspeaking. I don't know. Compared to some other low budget mummy movies that I've seen. And sometimes they just kind of throw whatever they can on the screen. I don't know. It seemed like he was trying to, to pay respect to the overall idea. This was an interesting deal. This was a co-production deal with Rennie Ottolina and a film company called Sarah Films that was apparently was created with the intent to produce the film. His wife Rena Ottolina plays the character of Amyrna and Helen. She was only in six films and this was really the, the, the best film of, of her very short career. Rennie Adelina, though, so he lived in Venezuela, had some some family and there was a lot of crime in Venezuela, a lot of corruption. And he was involved in, in politics and he eventually had to get his children. Uh, I think he had daughters had to get them out of Venezuela and living in Miami for their safety. He died only three years later in 1978. He was running for Venezuelan president and died in a mysterious uh, accident. Mm. And yeah, enter your conspiracy theories here. Clearly, he was going against the grain. Who knows what happened? But uh, yeah, a very unfortunate end. This was probably the, uh, I don't know any other films that Sarah Films made, but probably the most prominent, most remembered now. The rest of the cast, we should mention, obviously, Paul Nash, we got Jack Taylor playing Professor Nathan Stern. 127 credits. He was Igor in the Nostradamus film series, which I actually watched that earlier this year. That's a four-film series that was actually like a chapter serial, kind of the way they made them in Mexico and then broke it up over four films. I enjoyed that film series. I actually would love to have that in its original Spanish language. He was also in one of the Neutron films. Neutron was kind of a poor man's santo. Neutron versus Dr. Carante. He worked with Christopher Lee in Count Dracula, the Jess Franco 1970 version. He was in one of the Blind Dead movies, The Ghost Galleon, which is the third film in that series, the public domain film. (laughs) That movie always makes me laugh. I love the Blind Dead movies. That's my least favorite of the series because... It takes place on the ship, which is a great setting. But whenever they show the shots of the ship, it's just a toy boat in a tub of water. It's so bad. Vampire's Night Orgy. Haven't mentioned that one before. Night of the Sorcerers. He was an Exorcismo. And hey, Steve Turek, this is for you. He played a priest in Conan the Barbarian. (laughs) Maria Silva played Abigail. 75 film credits. She was in The Awful Dr. Orloff. Tombs of the Blind Dead, the Blind Dead reference, and Curse of the Devil. Helga to Linnae, yes, yes. Played Xanafer. Yep. 142 credits, The Blancheville Monster, Nightmare Castle. It was actually in a couple of the Agent Zero Double Seven movies. There was a trilogy of films. I have them, I haven't seen them. Mission Bloody Mary, and Special Mission Lady Chaplin. The other film in that series is from the Orient with Fury, which is an awesome title. The Dracula Saga, Santo vs. Dr. Death, and the Vampire's Night Orgy. Luis de Villa played in Spectre Taylor. 93 credits. Mostly agent films or, or you know, like crime drama films. A Quiet Place to Kill. Barcelona Kill, Espionage in Tangiers, where he plays Agent S-077. <laughs> no relation to the other agent, Zero Double Seven. And yes, those are obviously inspired by Agent 007, James Bond, one of many Euro spy films at the time. This movie was written by Jacinta Molina, directed by Carlos Arred, who was the assistant director on The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman, and then also directed... Uh, Nashi in films like Horror Rises from the Tomb, Curse the Devil, and The Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. I really enjoyed this movie. This was a movie that was wanted by Nashi fans for quite a while and was finally released uh, on Blu-ray by Scorpion Releasing. If you didn't get it, you're out of luck. It's out of print and is currently going for about $75 on eBay. Special features on this one, most notably, we've got Troy Howarth doing commentary Is definitely a good film, and if you can catch it at a decent price, I would recommend it. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: One scene I do want to mention that was just fantastic and a a good way to do it on a shoestring budget is the passage of time between when uh, he was mummified and then London, which, by the way, is not modern-day London even though apparently you can see some cars yeah, in the background. Can, yeah. uh, but it's just a time-lapse picture of the sarcophagus or or whatever. And yes. you know, as it speeds along, it gets dusty and there's cobwebs. And then the next thing you know, they're hammering through to the tomb.
2: The sewer sequence too. I thought that was really well done. I think I read where, yeah, it was a particularly stinky experience, I think, filming that. Not happy ending. Uh, is there really ever a happy ending for a mummy movie? I don't think there is, uh, and I'm not sure that there's a lot of happy endings for Nashi films, especially when he plays the character. Even though we're not a sympathetic one here, but well, there's uh, usually
1: somebody that walks out into the sun for a new, brand new day. But it, yeah, it's not usually the characters that we particularly want. It's,
2: yeah, it's usually it's not. No, I don't know what else to say about this one other than I really enjoyed it. Uh, second time viewing for me fun uh, commentary from, from Troy Howard. It was one of 13 films from AVCO Embassy's Nightmare Theater package. Other Nashy films in that package was Fury, The Wolfman, and Horror Rises from the Tomb. Those were out to, you know, late night creature features. I don't think, you know, in, in my creature feature experience with Crematia Mortem here in Kansas City, I don't recall her playing Nashi at all. A few Euro horror movies, I remember, but because I remember Castle of the Living Dead being my first time viewing was on Creature Feature, but I don't believe she she had this package of films or anything. Uh, there was no Nashi that I can recall.
1: Well, this will be a spoiler alert, but it is between this and Vengeance of the Zombies for being my favorite, and I still can't really decide. Although I made a note on this one that it was a little uneven and started to drag a bit at one point. I don't recall what that was, but let's say that that's true. Then that would make Vengeance of the Zombies my favorite of the three.
2: I don't think Vengeance trailed for me. I don't recall. And I do. Yes. Mummy's Revenge had kind of a kind of right midway through the film. It seemed to drag a little bit. I don't remember specifically about what was happening around that time, but it, dra- it drug a little bit. Yeah. Probably. Spoiler alert. Right. This is my. <laughs> second favorite of the three films. So that kind of, if you've been playing along at home, you know where things are headed. I guess let's get back to the timeline before we dive into our next film then, because as we get into this time period, 1975, the dictatorship ended in Spain. Spain returned to a monarchy in 1975 under uh, Juan Carlos I, It was a process that kind of lasted on into the early 80s. There was a new constitution ratified in 1978. Uh, There was a coup attempt in 1981, but that was ultimately unsuccessful. By the time our next movie was released in 83, the country was clearly transitioning from a very conservative nation to a more liberal one. Filmmaking became a much easier process uh, as well when you didn't have a dictatorship and the confines and the rules and regulations being passed on.
1: Richard, that makes me wonder, is now the time that you could tell us what else was going on in 1983? What? be the gun? Or is this a good time for that?
2: No, it's a good time for that. I do want to mention, I'll, I'll backtrack real quick. Okay. I have a succession of films In my collection prior to 1983 that I have not seen. And we've been talking about movies that we have or haven't seen. Crimson from 1976. This is on Blu-ray from Redemption. I think it's still in print. I need to get the Blu-ray. I have a digital copy of it. The People Who Own the Dark from 1976. I have the Sinister Cinema version of this movie. It's on a drive-in double feature number 164 with a film called The House with the Lapping Windows. I have not seen it yet. Okay, Inquisition from uh, May 1977, Blu-ray, I've got it, haven't seen it. The Frenchman's Garden from June 78 just got released on Blu-ray this year from Mondo Macabro, not a horror film, uh, and another Doninsky film, Night of the Werewolf, which was released in 1980. Going back to films that I have and have not seen, we have Human Beasts from 1980, which I will be talking a little bit more about in a second. I do have Night of the Werewolf on Blu-ray. So then we have Panic Beats from uh, May of 82. I know that is a Mondo Macabro film. I have not seen it. Now, unless there's anything else that you have on your list that I missed, now we're up to May
1: 1983. A so couple um, that don't have, haven't seen, don't know if they're available, but just sound curious to me. One is uh, El Transsexual. Is that really like what it sounds? Do you have any idea?
2: And yeah, it, it is like about what it sounds like. I think they mentioned that in the Man Who A Frankenstein Cry documentary. Yeah, it was controversial. And yeah. then Mystery on Monster Island. I forgot to mention that one. Yeah, that's. That one, I think, does that have Christopher, not Christopher Lee, does that have Peter Cushing in it?
1: Ah, I believe so.
2: Yes. Nashie's role in that is really small. It wasn't a film that he necessarily made. He was kind of hired to be in it. should mention, so Inquisition made 1976. That was his first film as a director. He formed, and is it pronounced, Aconito films A C O N I T O, A-C-O-N-I-T-O? A-C-O-N-I-T-O? Aconito? Aconito? That was his film company. As we get into the 1980s, he has his film company, as we'll talk about in a minute. The events. I have a lot of cool information leading up to what made when he made our next film that we're going to be covering. But now? now? <laughs> I think so, maybe. So we have not done 1983 yet. So, what was going on in the world in 1983? Well, Gas was 96 cents a gallon. Don't we wish those days were back. Inflation, I'm mentioning this because I do a comparison. So inflation was 3.22%. It is currently 5.4%. Average income in 1983 was $21,000. And you could buy a house, a new house for $82,000. To show you how far out of whack things have gotten, The average income in 2021 is $79,000. The average asking price for a house is $408,000. Inflation and the cost of living overall has risen while income has not at the same rate. You could make uh, a much better living in 1983 than you can now on average. The numbers don't lie. Okay, US invaded Granada. After the government was overthrown in a coup by a Cuban-trained military. Uh, This was made into a film, Heartbreak Ridge, I believe, with Clint Eastwood. Mario Brothers was released. It made its debut in Japan. The seatbelt law became mandatory in the UK. Heaven forbid we make people do something they don't want to do. The uh, U.S. Embassy was bombed in Beirut. Sally Ride became the first woman in space on the Challenger space shuttle. Microsoft Word had its first release, still with us today. Swatch Watch had its very first release. The U.S. president was Ronald Reagan. The Japanese prime minister was Yasuhiro Nakasone. Why do I mention that? You'll find out in a moment. Mm. Top songs in 1983 included Every Breath You Take by The Police, Their Synchronicity World Tour was in 1983. It was their final world tour before they broke up, and that was the very first concert I saw with opening act UB40. Beat It by Michael Jackson, Down Under by Minute Work, Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Top movies were uh, Star Wars Episode VI, Return of the Jedi, Tootsie, Flashdance, Trading Places, War Games, and Octopussy. Not one of the top movies of the year was E.T. Did you know upon its initial release that E.T. made less money than Jaws 3D?
1: I did not know that. I thought it was a gangbusters from the start.
2: It was one of the top movies of the year. It was, I think, in the top 20, but it was not in the top 10. It was not, it made more money upon its re release. It was a film that kind of continued to gain momentum it's VHS release which came out in 1988 because I was working at Duncan's Movie Magic when E.T. was a pre-order and it was one of the first movies priced to own at $20 it was a big deal to get E.T. but no it made less money in its initial release than Jaws 3D okay that's what was happening in 1983 and of course also happening 1983 was our next film, The Beast and the Magic Sword.
0: Le tengo encerrado en las mazmorras y tal parece que el prisionero sea yo. Pero temo a justiciarle. Temo que la maldición se cumpla y mi pueblo quede
2: condenado. <risa> que la eterna maldición del Señor de la Noche caiga sobre la estirpe de los Daninsky. Que jamás los espíritus de los que llevan su sangre encuentren la paz.
3: ¡No! Tu hijo
4: está maldito... <risa>
0: un hombre víctima de una maldición sufre una terrible enfermedad y recorre el mundo buscando la curación de su mal. Solo un sabio en el lejano oriente será capaz de curarle, pero para llegar hasta él deberá vencer los más insólitos obstáculos. La bestia y la espada mágica, una narración sorprendentemente nueva sobre un tema clásico del cine universal. Yo creo que posiblemente nos estemos enfrentando a algo que es mucho más destructor y maligno que un simple oso o un lobo de gran tamaño. ¿Plata para matar a esa bestia?
1: Valdemar, bebé de esta podrima.
2: Sus efectos os harán regresar al pasado. Y los profundos
4: misterios sobre el origen de vuestro terrible malo serán totalmente revelados.
0: Paul Magic, en su caracterización de la bestia, logra la más impresionante creación de su
3: carrera.
0: a Amachi, como el sabio Tiang, es a la vez el más arriesgado y diestro samurái. La bestia y la espada mágica. Un espectáculo grandioso donde la aventura, la acción, la fantasía y el terror crean una historia
3: inolvidable. La bestia
0: y la espada mágica, una obra maestra del cine fantástico, cuya grandiosidad y belleza marcan un hito jamás igualado.
2: In 16th century Japan, Vladimir Daninsky seeks a cure for the werewolf curse. Will it come from the human assistance of the warrior Kion or the magical assistance of the sorcerer Satomi? And how do the villagers handle the arrival of the beast and the magic sword?
1: All right, Richard, take it away. You loved this movie, correct?
2: I do. This is my favorite of the three films. But that's not to say it's perfect because it's not. This is my first time viewing. This movie is a uh, Mondo Macabro release. So thankfully, it is still available. I did not get the limited edition copy. I have the blue case rather than the red, and I don't have naked women on my covers. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is really and the booklet that you get the uh, when you do the and booklet.
1: you know what else and I didn't know this because I unwrapped it for my very first time little uh, mini lobby cards.
2: Oh, wow. I don't know why I missed this one. I've gotten most of the one, recent ones for some reason. I don't know why I missed this one anyway, but I, I'm glad to have this copy and I enjoyed it quite a bit. A little bit about the background of, of the production, because this was covered, talked about it. There's a, an interview with Paul Nashi on this one where he kind of talks about the production and, and kind of behind the scenes that went into this. Nashi was hired by a, a, a Japanese production company called Hori Kikaku, and the, the manager was Sasai san. If I'm pronouncing that correctly. Nashi was hired to narrate art documentaries. He was hired through a, uh, I guess, a mutual friend, uh, Masero Takeda. Eventually, Nashi thought, you know, he was hired. Uh, they were paying him good money to do the art documentary films, and he thought, well, why not make a regular film with them? And so he wrote The Pig, which eventually became Human Beast, which was released in 1980. Human Beast was successful, and uh, it was the joint effort between Amachi Films and Akanto Films. This led to the eventual script for The Beast and the Magic Sword. And this has a different feel to it, I think, than the other Dniski films that we've seen. That's a joint production between a Spanish production company and, and a Japanese production. They had a different way of making films. They were much more strict about a lot of things. For example, the need for a sword, it had to be, you know, uh, a silver sword. They had to to make a true silver sword. Nashi was just expecting, you know, a regular metal sword that would be painted to look silver. And they were like, no, you have to have a real sword. A lot of things like that went into the production that to, to try to make the movie more realistic the time period, 16th century, in which it's set and trying to make it believable that you're witnessing authentic visuals as how Japan would have appeared at that time. As with all of the Daniski films, of course, we get a unique origin story. And I think you mentioned earlier that that's part of the film that you feel like they probably could have done away with, because it really does, I think, take, you know, what the first 20-plus minutes of the film, if not longer.
1: 23 minutes. I timed it. <laughs> How
2: much? 23. 23 minutes. We are introduced initially to an ancestor of, I guess, the is it the father or is it an ancestor? I don't think it's established as the father. It's the ancestor. Arrhenius Daniski, he's a knight, and he is hired to do battle with another knight from an opposing clan, and that clan has formed some type of allegiance with a sorceress. He is the only one that can actually defeat this other warrior. So he's asked to do it. He says that he will do it, but for a price, he wants the king's daughter. He wants her hand in marriage. And so it's agreed upon. And so we get a uh, eventually a, a battle sequence, and uh, Irenaeus uh, Danisky wins, defeating the other warrior and gets to marry the king's daughter. She's clearly attracted to him. They, they are truly in love, even though it was a, an arranged marriage. And she is soon with child. And then, of course, the sorceress, you know, passes on a curse And a kind of a scary little sequence where, you know, she has the skull of a wolf or a werewolf and uses it to pierce the stomach of his bride, thus passing on the curse to the child. Beginning, of course, the curse that will now be passed on from generation to generation, the curse of lycanthropy. Then we get the you know, kind of the flash forward to the sequence now where we see Valdemir uh, is trying. He and was it his wife or his girlfriend? I thought it was his wife. That's the character of Kinga, Correct. Correct played by uh, Beatriz Escudero. Now we're in the time of the Spanish Inquisition. He's trying to find the cure and meets up with a friend who ends up being on the wrong side of the Spanish Inquisition and is killed before he is able to come up with a cure. Essentially, he then, and his dying wish is to take his granddaughter, correct? It's not his daughter, but his granddaughter?
1: Uh, niece, I thought.
2: Niece, Okay. So the niece, Esther, yes, played by Violeta Sela, go to Japan and seek out Kion, who will be able to take what has been done so far and complete the uh, experiments and come up with a cure for Daniski. That's 23 minutes of the film before we get to where Daninsky is now in Japan. And I guess you can say the movie proper starts I liked that 23-minute opening sequence. I think it was a good origin story wrapped up in 23 minutes. We get an idea of how the curse started. We do get that jump a little bit now. It's an ancestor. But I I do kind of like the whole setting of the Spanish Inquisition and the fact that he has to go to Japan. I suppose you could have started the movie off right in Japan and just explained why he was there. I feel it had added to the movie, though. It, it, It gave it a... Broader scope, which I appreciated.
1: I liked it in and of itself. I think it's fantastic. This movie pushes two hours, and I just think that's too long. I mean, that almost could have been its own movie. I mean, it's weird that that part of it kind of seems rushed. A lot happens in that 23 minutes. So then let me ask you this later on, Valdemar has a vision, or I think the sorceress has him recall his origin, and he flashes back to that. It helps that we've seen that because at that point, we only need to see those little bits and we know what happened. But could they not have extended that a little bit and not had the beginning and bring the movie in in an hour and a half?
2: They could have done it differently. I think that would have worked. I agree. The movie is about 30 minutes too long. It's a long film. You could have edited out some of that in the beginning, even though I enjoyed it. I think. There probably could have been a different way to incorporate the origin story in. There is some odd things that happen as we get towards the final act that kind of stood out to me because you've got Valdemar and and, and Kinga, and they're clearly also kind of watching over Esther. And then the character of Satomi is introduced, the sorceress, if you will, who is... Causing mayhem, <laughs> and Esther is kind of dispatched rather unceremoniously. I mean, she's killed in in this. Odds, it's it was Esther, right? Or did I get the two?
1: No, characters? no, no, no. I wait. I don't think so. I think it was his wife that was killed because then doesn't Esther end up being his true love that can? No, because she's blind. Good
2: <laughs> I think it was Esther. Was the, the I get these names. Esther was blind because yeah, so Esther was the one that was, I think she was killed rather unceremoniously during that sequence with Satomi where she is whipping and torturing. <laughs> That's right,
1: because it's Kyan's sister that ends up being the true love.
2: Yes. Then we have the sequence where where Kinga is kind of unceremoniously dispatched. And that was an odd sequence that Kinga and Valdemir are walking kind of through the forest, <laughs> gathering their nuts in May, and there's a wire, and they trip wire, and here comes a giant spear, bang, and goodbye. Why was that trap there? I didn't catch. Unless I, exactly,
1: it was but do you think that was a trap they had set for the werewolf when they were trying to catch it? Well,
2: that's what I, I guess you can, you can assume that it was. It just wasn't explained unless I missed something. No. I didn't think that it was explained what that was. That's the only reason I could think that you would have a trap with a spear, pretty intense, and one that it would fly it at like you know chest level if it was an animal you would have Mm, potentially gone right over it what I had a problem with was how quickly we segue into Valdemir falling in love with Keon's sister which was necessary because of course the only way to defeat a werewolf is by Silver being dispatched by a loved one it just seemed to me as like okay, you've been with Kinga for a while, and all of a sudden, we're, we're escalating things.
1: That is very common, though, in his werewolf movies. This is less forced than in some of them, where you know, we talked about how it's got to be that loved one, the true love, the one that would die for him. Somewhere, maybe it was Troy Howarth, or someone said in those early werewolf movies, that's done very clumsily, and it's very forced, because you have to do it for the plot. It gets better in some of the movies, that didn't bother me as much in this one. Maybe I was just used to it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is done better here. I guess if he didn't have, if he didn't have a love and then, you know, that's not uncommon in the movies. is like, especially especially old movies from the 30s and 40s, right? I mean, it's like you run into somebody it's like by the end of the movie, they're getting married and, and having children. Taking a step back, I, I love the way this visually, this was a stunning film. I think of the three films, there's, there's, You've got location shots, which always adds to um, the fun of a film. The sets did not look cheap to me. I mean, we're kind of talking about Mummy's Revenge suffers from having maybe a a lower budget. Clearly, this being a a co-Japanese production, their standards were relatively high, I think, compared to maybe some other nashy films that were dealing with a smaller budget. And I think ultimately that helped make this movie... Seem grander on scale. I mean, the sequence where Daniski is is battling the tiger was kind of cool. You wouldn't see that in today's world.
1: So I've got several things about that. First of all, was that him or was it a stunt double? He he talked about that in the introduction, but he didn't say if that was actually him doing that.
2: It had to be a stunt double. I, a I can't imagine. I don't know though. I mean, Nashi, you know, did do. A lot of his stuff so I, I don't know that's that's a good question and then my uh, other
1: thing was i doubt if she did carla didn't watch this did she
2: carla did not watch any of the nasty movies okay
1: i just wondered what she would have thought about a tiger and a werewolf two creatures that on their own she would have empathy for and feel sad if something bad happened and then here they both are like that would have been too much for her.
2: I can tell you, if we would have even, if she would have agreed to watch these three films, I would have lost her on the chicken scene. the <laughs> Zombies, it would have been done at that point. So let's talk about the cast real quick here. Nashi playing multiple roles again. His makeup work, I guess we'll sidetrack here real quick. The makeup work, I think, is probably one of the best. I did not write down who did the makeup work for this. Compared to other Daniski films, I think this was one of the best. Maybe his age being a little bit older. I know that as we get a little farther on in his career, his age kind of hampered, I think, some of his, like, especially his last werewolf film. I think at this time period, though, I think maybe the way that his overall appearance was might have helped. Shigeru Amachi plays the character of Kian, 157 credits. I've got three of his other films, honestly. Yeah, I've got a he looks called-
1: so, so familiar, but I yes. looked at his list and I don't recognize the movies. What has well, he been in? I've
2: got The Ghost of Yatsuya, which is a 1959 Japanese ghost story. Actually, almost watched it during the Halloween season. I, w- I had a stack of Japanese films that I wanted to watch. I only made it through quite on. Loved, 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 loved that movie. <laughs> ghost of Yatsuya, I have seen before and I really enjoyed it. He was also in a couple of the Zatoichi films, hmm. which I have yet to dive into. But he was in Tale of Zatoichi in 62 and Zatoichi's Vengeance in 66. Now, he only made three more movies after this movie. He died in 1985 at the age of 54. I don't mm-hmm. know what he died of, but he died at a very young age, obviously. And now we mentioned uh, Beatriz Escudero as Kinga at 33 credits. I did not recognize any of her other films. Violetta Sela plays Esther, 36 credits. I didn't recognize any. <laughs> Junko Asahina plays the character of Satomi, 27 credits. I want to say she had an interesting career. I'm going to mention three of the titles that I can safely say on this podcast <laughs> Wet and Writing, Jump and Straddle, <laughs> and Pleasure in the Mirror. Oh, my. And there was a few titles that I think might have caused our ratings to, you know, (laughs) we might have gone to PG-13 or R. 27 film credits, and most of them seem like they're in that vein. Take that as you will. Uh, The character of Akane, the sister played by Yoko Fuji. I also did not recognize any films that she was in. We're getting into some territory that I'm not as well versed in. The cast was impressive for the most part, I, especially Shigeru Amachi, I thought was really yeah. good as, as Kian. This was a very different film than I think anything that he had ever done. Unfortunately, it, it did not do well. The movie was not successful. I mean, the film did not get released. I think it, at this point, it was like the first of the Daniski films, I think, that hadn't been given a U.S. release. And has been a very hard film to find, as I understand it, until the recent Mondo Macabro release. And any copies that were out there were like bootleg print. I think this is a film that is just in recent years been getting seen by a lot of people and is getting generally recognized as one of Nashi's best films. Nashi considered it one of his best films. He enjoyed the film overall. I think out of all the Nashi films that I've seen, I will go on record and saying it's my favorite film so far. Overall feel it's an incredibly well-made film. I also love the music. I should say... Hmm. Angel Artiaga, 99 composing credits. He worked with Nashi on, on several other films, including Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, Fury, The Wolfman, and The Frenchman's Garden, as well as The Last Kamikaze, which was released in 84. He died January 17th, 1984, at the age of 55. And again, I don't know why he passed away so early. You don't like this one as well as I do. What were your issues with this one? Why why didn't you care for
1: it? I just think it's the subject matter. I don't, none of his werewolf films are among my favorites. This was a, it wasn't what I expected, but kind of in the opposite way. First of all, I didn't even really know if it was going to be horror. So I was surprised. It is very much a horror film. I mean, there are the murders, there's the full moon. None of that is taken away. Yet it's got this overlay of the Japanese and this, Comic, there's ninjas, there's uh, sword fighting. It's just odd. I, I don't know how to describe it. I, I kind of thought, okay, this is going to be like Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. It's less Japanese than I thought it would be. That doesn't make sense, but there is more horror than there is like samurai stuff. Yeah. Which is good. I should like that. We haven't talked much about the makeup. Earlier when we talked about makeup, I can't remember what movie it was now. she designed it. Uh, He didn't build it or construct it. You know, he had makeup artists that did that, but it it was designed. And in the werewolf movies, it's very different. In one of them we watched, it's very Lon Chaney-like. In the other one, it's barely more than just, you know, hair, and you mostly see his human face. This one is like a full-on, almost like a helmet, because his head is taller with ears, and his werewolves always drool notice you notice that? There's tons of stuff coming out of his mouth. And yeah. <laughs> after he bites someone, blood just pours out of the mouth. I don't know if I liked this makeup as much. I'm not really giving you valid reasons for why I don't like this. It is a good movie. It is high quality. It is well-made. It's compelling. It's a good story. The characters are good. It's just taste-wise, not my favorite
2: going on the the makeup i'm looking at the the two uh, credited for makeup Saiti arai one and only film fernando florido had 77 credits and quite a few Nashi films
1: I just thought of something else. So you mentioned that this is an older Paul Nashie. So yeah, I think it works with the character. He's like world weary. He just seems older. I think there's maybe a little gray in his hair. Seems a little more tired. He's gotten more soft. But I just think maybe I like his earlier films when he's younger. This is the only one I'm going on. I haven't seen any of his 80s
2: yet. I've got a couple of films post this that I have not seen yet. I have Howl of the Devil from 1987, which I am familiar with that one, where he plays multiple monster characters. And then I do have a, a version of his 1997 film, Lacanthropo. Daninsky storylines after Beast and the Magic Sword, there were two more Daninsky films there was uh, Lacanthropo or Lacanthropus. Uh, the Full Moon Killer or Moonlight Murders. I have a YouTube version of that, and I haven't seen it yet. And then, much later, he did, which was his last film, last Tyniski film, Tomb of the Werewolf in two thousand and four. Oh wow! Um, or the Unliving, as it was released. That one was a low budget American production, hampered by the fact that Nashi could not speak English. I've not seen that one. I believe he speaks a little English in it, but it's a little disjointed. I think they had some clips of that, and and his makeup work is different in that film. Again, Nashi being much older at that point, I kind of want to see that. You know, just kind of see where you know. Having seen where he started, having seen a lot of the films from the middle, I'm I'm really kind of looking forward to seeing the Lycanthropus and Tomb of the Werewolf. Having I don't know where the Unliving is at. If it's been given a, a dvd or blu-ray release but i am kind of curious on that one hmm. this is a time period where things are, are getting ready to change for for Nashi because his movies really aren't making money anymore this is kind of a, a point of transition you know since this film did not get a, a u.s release Nashi and his style of films were kind of out of style now and so he enters a, a point of his career where he was never an A-list actor in the States, but his films had a measure of prestige in Spain. But now he he begins taking smaller roles and, and starting to take more bit parts and some more TV work and kind of getting away from the core films that everyone always talks about His films, you know, um, starting with Mark of the Wolfman and, and leading up to this film or his uh, Howl of the Devil. At that point, you know, his career later part of it is, isn't covered as much because is, he's he's older and he wasn't necessarily making the movies. He was appearing in some of these films. We'll talk about here in a second how really the next four years were really rough years for, for Nashi. But before we dive into that, I don't have anything else on, on this film other than to say that it is my favorite of what we saw. Not perfect, but I enjoyed it. I think it had to do with the fact that it was different. Yeah. That there was the Japanese setting. All of that appealed to me. And the thing that threw me was seeing Japanese characters speaking in Spanish. It didn't ruin it for me at all. It just kind of made me chuckle when I thought about it. This movie's on, on Blu-ray from Mondo Macabre for about 22 bucks. Easily available. Thankfully, two of the three films are easily available for people. Mummy's Revenge is going to be trickier for people to find. But I would recommend this movie. I guess let's kind of talk about where things went from here. Following this film, uh, it didn't make money. And ultimately, uh, his films were now losing money. And his film studio went bankrupt in 1984. Also the year that he lost his father. This led to a serious depression, very dark period of time thankfully by the time we get to 1987 he makes howl of the devil he begins to kind of come out the other end of it he's recovering he's kind of getting back into filmmaking but he suffers another setback when he suffers a near fatal heart attack in 1991. Pretty much from this point and I think one of his sons talk about this in the documentary is that prior to this heart attack in 91 He was still weightlifting. He was, he was vibrant. He was vital. He was Mr. Man, you know, (laughs) he was, he was this strong character and the heart attack changed that it changed his lifestyle and he was no longer as vibrant as he was, as he would enter now into the kind of twilight of his, of his career, having this older physique, you know, obviously he could not do some of the things that he did in his previous movies. But as we said, he's, was still able to pull off a couple of werewolf movies uh, and was still making films, but he was beginning to make different types of films and he wasn't always the lead. And he, so he was entering that period of time that every actor has where they're, they're no longer playing the roles they did when they were younger. They're adapting their style to kind of change with the times or change quite frankly, with, with uh, the fact that he's older, he came to the U S in March of 2003 to make two movies, Countess Dracula's Orgy of Blood and Tomb of the Werewolf. His last film as a director was in 2007, a movie called Empusa. It wasn't released until 2012, which uh, unfortunately was was after he had passed. Right around this time, he was making uh, quite a few other films, some of which got released After his uh, death, which is something, for example, we experienced with Karloff. His last film of of prominence, and is something I want to see, two films, actually, The Valdemar Legacy. Uh, He plays a character of Gervas. The uh, first film uh, was filmed in 2008, released in 2010. The second film was filmed in 2009, released in 2010 and i believe if i if i got the timeline correctly the last film that he was working on was the apostle which was an animated film and so he was doing voice work only and he did not finish his work prior to his death it was eventually released in 2011 he died of pancreatic cancer on october 24th 2009 at the age of 75 it seemed like the end happened very, very quickly. By the time it was diagnosed, things moved rather uh, quickly, which is probably for the best. Thankfully, though, before his death, he did, when he came to the U.S., he did appear, he appeared at at least one convention, but he he began to see his films be recognized, and he began to be recognized, you know, outside of his home country, and that was important to him, and he was beginning to to see that His films were appreciated and it kind of caught him off guard. I believe uh, one of his sons may have been with him around this time and commented on how cool it was to to essentially see people lined up around the block to get an autograph of his father. In the documentary, The Man Who Saw Frankenstein Cry, which was made in 2010, it was released and made right after his death. His wife and two sons, you know, are featured in the documentary, and are, his sons are are continuing the legacy now, uh, and speak, you know, very uh, affectionately of their father, and both as a father and as a filmmaker. There is a movie they had mentioned that he played Fu Manchu, and I was like, when did he play Fu Manchu? Well, he played it apparently in a 1990 short film called La Jija de Fu Manchu, or The Daughter of Fu Manchu. I guess it's like a tongue-in-cheek film, but he plays Fu Manchu very seriously. It is available on YouTube. Unfortunately, it does not have subtitles. Hmm. It is 20 minutes long. I'm probably still going to watch it. I can't seem to find it anywhere else with subtitles. I'm kind of curious to see his take on on the Fu Manchu character, even if it is in a tongue-in-cheek film that it doesn't look like it's as tongue-in-cheek as Peter Sellers' The Fiendish Plot of Dr. <laughs> Fu Manchu. It doesn't look like that. But I am, I'm curious because he played so many other zombies and hunchbacks and and vampires. And, you know, he played Dracula and monsters and all of this. Fu Manchu, just one of his many other characters. That, I guess, is a 1990 film. And so that comes towards the, the latter part of his career. And I am curious on seeing that. That's just me. That's all I've got on, on Paul Nashie. Do you have anything else you want to close out with?
1: I don't think so. We talked at the beginning. I've gotten a greater respect for him. The more movies I've watched, the more I learn about him. I recommend all the movies that we saw and that there are enough out there. People could explore their own and find favorites of their own.
2: Hopefully we've been able to do justice to Paul Nashie. And if we can get some of you interested in, in checking out Nashi films, let us know. If you get a chance to watch them, watch, watch them, watch them. Let us know what you think. Let us know these three films or other films. If you've got recommendations for maybe something we didn't mention, maybe there's a film out there that we didn't cover because we didn't cover everything. We didn't mention every film. If there's another film out there that you recommend that we see, let us know.
1: We're two living witnesses of this. If you've seen a Nashi film and you thought it wasn't your cup of tea, give it another try. Pick one from a different era or a different subject matter. There might be something that you do like.
2: As one gets older and you get more experienced as you watch other films. Yes, some of the things I loved when I was 10 years old, I still love. I can sit down and watch an episode of Land of the Lost. And I'm still entertained as I was, you know, when I was a kid. But things that I didn't appreciate in the past, as I've gotten older and have seen more things and I just my taste evolved. I appreciate them now.
1: Let's take one last break and come back and wrap up with new business. Richard, breaking news. I tell you, our friend Steve Sullivan has been very responsive to our both of our posts throughout the countdown to Halloween. And as I've been posting NASHI reviews, I was communicating with him online and said, Hey you know, you need to send us in a, a voicemail. So he did. We had already recorded, but as I said, breaking news, uh, he took quite a bit of time to leave us this very detailed history of the Doninsky films and talk a little bit about why he loves Nashi. So let's take a listen to it.
6: Hey, Jeff. Hey, Rich. This is Steve Sullivan. Really enjoying your show. Every month I think, oh, I'm going to call in, or I'm going to haul out audacity and record you a long thing. I'm sadly not one of those people that has a, uh, a phone that does recording really well. My phone always seems to be running out of space despite what I do. Anyway, so audacity is always tricky and the phone calls, you know, they get cut off at like two minutes. So, but, but this month you're doing Paul Nashie films. And I'm a huge fan of Paul Nashie, as you know. And I, of course I have to call in. And I've got a, a Nashie project on the works, which I'm actually writing. Right now, it's probably the worst kept secret, secret in all of Monster Kid fandom. But I haven't really done an official announcement on it. But there is a Paul Nashi related project that I am currently writing, and will be writing as soon as I finish talking to you guys today. So Paul Nashi, I lo- I love his work. I feel a fellow feeling for him because he's one of these people that in the movies you don't get the big acclaim as an auteur unless you're a, an author. Or a writer, and the writing part, it
4: can be acclaimed as
6: like really high, high marks, high bar to clear. So, now she kind of gets left out because he's a a writer, author, a writer, director, actor. And that kind of puts him in a, a weird middle ground that as a, an author, artist, editor, game designer type, I kind of Get slumped into that. Well, which one are you? Pick one. Well, I'm all of them, and Nashi was all of those things, and that's one of the one of the reasons that I really, really love his work. He's unique in cinema, and I was thinking just before I called you up that Nashi may be the greatest monster kid movie maker of all time because he loved monsters the way all of us do, and he made movies. And he made movies about monsters. He didn't make movies about other stuff. He made... I mean, he did. But his concentration was on the kind of monsters that all of us love. And a lot of them that he made were his werewolf films, which I think are wonderful. There are... Depending upon how you count, there are 13, but there are 10 that are part of the the Valdemar Doninsky saga. And... All of them were worth seeing in one way or another, and you've started reviewing them in order, and I think that's a great thing. Uh, I don't know if you're going to do that in in your recording or just online, but it's really interesting to see the way that they change and develop and the struggles that he has during making these films. There are some other great Nashi films. In fact, there are quite a lot of them. My friend David and Dale and I are going through Nashi films every week, when we can, together online, on, you can follow us on the Monster Conservancy site, and talking about what he's doing, what Nashie's doing in the films, and the, the things that are really cool, and the and the things where the low budget and that kind of stuff shows through, but despite all of that, the werewolf stuff is my favorite, because werewolves are my favorite monsters, and Nashie did more werewolf films than anyone else, I think. I don't think there's anyone that's even come close. So with 13 werewolf appearances, 10 of them in his canon, plus another one, one of the other two, three has the Daninsky character in it. But Waldemar Daninsky is in ten films that Nashi wrote, some of which he directed, some of which were directed by people like Leon Klimov, which are in a really good. So here we go Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, the first one, which is an absurd. American name and we really deserve a Blu-ray of the original, which is Mark of the Wolfman, Men, uh, Marco del Hombre Lope, And I'm hoping we'll get that soon. It's really cool and it kind of shows all of Nashie's future interests right there in his first film. And I, I love it. Assignment Terror, you reviewed that. It's a bit of a hot mess, but it's also really cool and it's got, you know, it's got a werewolf, it's got a mummy, it's got not Dracula because I think they were probably afraid of using the names that Universal was using. So they created new, different names for Frankenstein's monster and Dracula. Anyway, it's, it's a bit of a hot mess, but it's, it's a monster mash, and it's got aliens bringing monsters together to conquer the world. And it doesn't quite work out that way, but it's still really cool, and I enjoy it. Fury the Wolfman is another one of these hot mess movies. Now he was always struggling with budget, and sometimes he was fighting with the people he was collaborating with, with the filmmakers, and... and so, there was never time, there was never money. But the Blu ray of Fury of the Wolfman is really pretty darn good, and it's the weakest of the films in a lot of ways, but on Blu ray, it still works out really well. And then we get The Werewolf versus The Vampire Women, otherwise known as The Night of the Walpurgis or La Noche de la Walpurgis. And that's where Nashi really comes into full bloom, I think, where we get The Werewolf. We get the vampires, we get the castles, we get all the cool universal-type tropes that Nashie loved from his time seeing uh, Frankenstein meets Wolf wolfman when he was a little kid. And he keeps returning again to these classic monsters that he loves. So next up is Dr. Jekyll and the werewolf, or Dr. Jekyll versus the werewolf, Uh, even though versus isn't really quite right, which is probably not what you're going to expect, and I don't want to Ruin it for people that haven't seen it. I know you reviewed it recently, Jeff, and you really loved it. And I really love it, too. It's one of my favorites. It's got everything you expect kind of in a Euro trash horror. Plus, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and the werewolf. What more could you ask? Go in and see it. It's, it's not, As I said, it's not going to be what you expect, probably. But Paul Nash's version of Hyde is, I think, the scariest Mr. Hyde on screen because he's he's not a monster in the way you expect but he seems very monstrous it's very it seems very real to me with him and i think that allowed him to kind of show the darker sides of his character on screen then we've got the curse of the devil which is kind of a backflash to more classic Daninsky. it's got witches and it's got werewolves and and it's it's a lot of fun and cool the one after that is Night of the Howling Beast, which is also known as The Werewolf vs the Yeti. And there's there's a good Blu-ray out of this, and it's it's really worth seeing. And it has a werewolf, and it doesn't have much of a yeti, but the werewolf stuff and Nashi and Waldemar Januszki in Tibet is really really cool and worth seeing. And after that, we've got Night of the Werewolf, which is kind of a remake of Werewolf vs the Vampire Women, uh, otherwise known as The Return of El Hombre Lobo, and Nashi directed this, and it's terrific. It's one of the best ones. It's it's really it's beautifully made, and it's this and the next film show what Nashi could do when he actually had money. The next one is The Beast and the Magic Sword, which takes the werewolf from medieval Europe to Japan, medieval Japan, and who would have thought of that? And it's got Japanese swordplay, it's got ninjas, and it's got an amazing fight with a real tiger with a the werewolf and a real tiger in it and yow, amazing and
4: Nashi at his
6: peak, and sadly, right after that happened, he stopped getting the kind of money that he needed to make these kind of terrific terrific films. So the last of the original Waldemar Daninsky films is Lycanthropus, which is set in the modern day. And it's interesting, but it's not even available on it. a good Blu ray or D V D in the United States was really Really sad, but it's it's a big come down after Beast and the Magic Sword. So those are the Daninsky films and I'm doing a uh, a project that's got something to do with Nashi and maybe werewolves. If you're interested in these films, not just the Nashi Werewolf films, but all of Nashi's films. As I said earlier, my friend David Annandale and I are live watching them together online on the Monster Conservancy, usually every Friday, usually around 3 to 4 Central we start. And we're limited as to what's available to both him in Canada and me in the U.S. And occasionally we've, we've alternated and, and done a bunch of Bava films too. So we're going to keep doing that as long as we have <laughs> films by those two people to, to keep watching. So you can tune in. For those that are interested, I, I mentioned that there were three more werewolf films that uh, Nashi did. The first is Howl of the Devil, which just had a terrific Blu-ray release, in which Nashi plays, very briefly, Valdemar appears, but doesn't really interact in the story in any way. There are, um I wouldn't describe them as quite fantasy sequences, but they kind of are, in which Nashi plays every conceivable monster that you've ever heard of, from, you know, the Frankenstein monster and, and, uh, well, just a whole gamut. And uh, The Werewolf is one of them, and he shows up. One I just recently watched, which is hard to find and, and certainly not worth spending a lot of time and effort finding, is A Werewolf in the Amazon. That was done by Brazilian filmmakers. And uh, it's got national Werewolf makeup, but it's not a Daninsky film, so it's not, not kind of part of the canon. There's also Tomb of the Werewolf, which is also known by another name that I'm uh, the Unliving, I think. And that was made by Fred Olin Ray, who was a fan of Nashie's and it, it does feature a character named Valdemar Daninsky, but it's kind of a softcore porn film with um, monsters in it. <laughs> so if you like that kind of thing, and, and, and I'm certainly not opposed to it, it, it's fun, it's good to see Nashi, but it is near the end of his career. It's like watching Boris in the Mexican films at the end of Carlos' career. So you can choose whether you want to see those. But the other ten Nashi werewolf films I would recommend, and some of them I would recommend highly uh, as being among the best werewolf films of all time. So that's it. More than enough stuff about Nashi. Have a great Nashi month. Everyone, check out the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com, and we're chatting on Facebook, and I'll talk to you again soon. Steve Sullivan signing off.
2: Thank you Mr. Sullivan for calling in a very detailed uh, voicemail. It's so good to hear your voice. Yeah, a lot of great information there. Uh, I know that you've been uh, playing those Nashy uh, movies, uh kind of the watch-alongs on Facebook. Unfortunately, I'm always working when you're doing that. i was like, I always think, oh that'd be fun to do, join in the conversation, but I can't uh, I can't with the timing of it. And I love that you know the details that you gave about the Denisky Werewolf series or you know, Nashi's Werewolf films, which uh, a little convoluted. We we've talked a little bit about it in the episode. You kind of did a little deeper dive, uh, going movie by movie and kind of sharing some thought. Thank you so much for that. I know that as this episode goes live, Nashi November is certainly something that Jeff has embraced this month. I feel like I'm just going to sit this one out and let, let Jeff take it because he's doing such a good job. I'm enjoying what he's writing and uh, enjoy your thoughts. It's been uh, a lot of fun diving into Nashie and
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate it. I appreciate the conversations online and your support of the show and for calling it. Just can't thank you enough. Richard. Poor, poor pickings this month for uh, home video releases, I guess, in the, the time after Halloween. That's kind of to be expected. But a, f- a few things of note. First of all, I want to point out that Vinegar Syndrome is having their Black Friday sale on, coincidentally, Black Friday. They haven't announced all of their titles yet, but they are releasing Flesh for Frankenstein, which is Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. And I believe during a previous event, they did Andy Warhol's Dracula. So you can have the pair of those now. A Dario Argento film from 1993 called Trauma. And then a 1985 movie called Creature, which I've never seen, but can distinctly remember the VHS cover box from the video store days. Check them out. See what else they will be offering on Black Friday. Got a couple more. They still have not unveiled yet.
2: I have one thing that's coming out early December, December 7th. It's the woodlands, dark and days bewitched documentary from Severin. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of falls in our wheelhouse a little bit. I, I know they do some recent stuff, but they are, they do some stuff in the 70s. I'm curious about that documentary. It's part of a box set that, you know, Severin does great work. The box set didn't necessarily draw me in because I wasn't familiar with any of the titles, But I'm always a sucker for a good documentary. So that that one comes out on December 7th. It's one of those things where that could be a a rabbit hole, right? I'll I'll watch this documentary. I'm like, well, those eight films look amazing. And now I've got to, you know, find the box set. The only other thing I've got, and it's, I don't even have a date for it, but they announced it. I was kind of caught off guard. I don't think it's going to get released to next year. But want to mention the first two Fu Manchu movies with Warner Oland Mm. are getting released by Kino Lorber. They announced it with no date. So again, I'm assuming after the first of the year, but the mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu and the return of Dr. Fu Manchu from 1929 and 1930. They don't have the rights for the third film in the trilogy, which was called Daughter of the Dragon from 1931. Because someone asked and they responded, yep, don't have the rights for that. That's a bit complicated. I never thought those two films would get released on Blu-ray. In fact, for many years, I was trying to find copies of those. And honestly, within the last month, I found copies on archive.org. They looked like VHS dubs. We mentioned Fu Manchu, so I just thought I would mention that is coming soon.
1: Thanks for all that. There, There were some still November releases that I didn't get to. Uh, I know I led that acting like there there weren't. Also, Barnes & Noble Criterion Sale. That's going on this month. I don't know if I'll be getting anything because I did get Incredible Shrinking Man from a sale they had a, couple, a month or so ago. We've mentioned this before on November 23rd from Kino Lorber. The entire series of Night Gallery is coming out on Blu-ray, as is the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 4K. Finally, on November 30th from Arrow Video, a box set of Giallo Essentials. This is right up your alley, Rich, is what you need.
3: Uh-huh.
1: A movie called The Possessed from 1965, with which I'm not familiar, but the fifth chord from 71 and the pajama girl case from 78. I have seen those and those are both reviewed at classichorrors.club. And then finally, from Arrow on the 30th, Mill of the Stone Women. This is from 1960. It's the first Italian horror film filmed in color. It is also one that I remember the VHS cover box. And it was a very, very poor cover box. Never made me want to see the movie, even though I'd occasionally pick it up and read the back of it. Have you ever seen that?
2: I've heard of it, but I've never seen it, no.
1: Huh, I'm intrigued by that. So I may research that a little bit more and might invest in that one.
2: I will just add one more thing. If you thought we'd get through a Paul Nashie episode without a Doctor Who reference, Uh, you're wrong. uh, (laughs) Uh, There's a Doctor Who release coming up, which I thought was kind of cool and a little bit unexpected. Uh, November 16th for our Doctor Who fans out there. The Evil of the Daleks, which is a lost Patrick Troughton story from 1967. uh, The last story of the fourth season. One episode exists out of seven they have animated it and uh, using the original audio tracks you know they have restored it like they have done other uh stories from that season and it's kind of getting fast tracked on the american release they they've been kind of weird there's been a delay on the release dates from the uk release to the us release but this one was fast tracked a little bit so it comes out november 16th they've got several others that they kind of pseudo announced and they're restoring Essentially, these classic ones, uh, Doctor Who stories, they're adding animation to stories that are incomplete and then using what footage they have.
1: Cool. Thank you for adding that. Let's go to birthdays and anniversaries from November. These are all from November of previous years. Uh, Speaking of Boris Karloff earlier in the episode, November 23rd, 1887 was his birthday. And we took a deep dive into his life and career in episode 15, King Karloff. Same day, well, all all three of these birthdays are November 23rd, but in 1916, Michael Guff, we talked about him in Conga in our episode 28, Britain Under Siege. We talked about Conga and Gorgo, right? Yeah. And then November 23rd, 1930, I don't think we've talked about him proper, but Rico Browning was born. Anniversaries, November 20th, 1977, The Pack came out. I mentioned that only because I wrote about that in the Countdown to Halloween this year. Uh, not a bad Nature Gone Wild movie. It was okay. I enjoyed it. November 21st, 1931, Frankenstein, the big granddaddy of them all. I mentioned that because you and I are participating in the Diecast Movie Podcast in uh, Steve's. James Whale retrospective. Your episode has aired already where you talked about Journey's End. I have an episode coming up with him talking about Waterloo Bridge. And then both of us get together and talk with him about Frankenstein. So maybe one of those will be released by the time this comes out. If not, be sure to watch for that. And then finally, November 29th, 1973, Frankenstein, the true story. We've talked about that many times. And then we focus two episodes on it. 42, Frankenstein, the Quarantine Story, and 42B, (laughs) Interview with Sam Irvin. Our past episodes continue to be relevant, as I'm sure they will for a lifetime.
2: Absolutely. I want to mention one more thing, the Boris Karloff documentary. Oh, yes, yes. I've been hearing about this for a couple of years, and it finally got finished and released in a limited theatrical release I think in September, Boris Karloff, The Man Behind the Monster. Based on the trailer, it looks like an incredibly well-made documentary featuring uh, input from quite a, quite a plethora of, of individuals. I believe it's been given the endorsement by uh, Sarah Karloff. It is getting a uh, Blu-ray DVD edition for Christmas It is currently being funded via an Indiegogo campaign. As we record this on the 6th of November, there are 33 days left. By the time you hear this, it'll be less than a month. Now, they have a goal, and it's a flexible goal, uh, $14,578. They are only at 15%. I believe the flexible goal gives them leeway in that they will do like a partial Release, if I understood it correctly, in the way that it's worded. They have hopes of how many that that will be available in the initial release, but there's nothing that really indicates that if they don't meet the overall goal, that that it will not be released at all. I think it'll just be a smaller release for those who participated. Don't quote me on that, though. I'm going to be contributing, I am definitely interested in it. Check it out. It's Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster. DVD. It's on Indiegogo.com. Contribute today. Apparently they wanted Shout Factory to release it and Shout Factory wasn't interested. <laughs> they, had, they were involved in the release of the film theatrically, but were not interested in the release of the film on digital media. According to Indiegogo, they said that Shout Factory is steering away from physical media. I don't know if that's necessarily true because they're still putting DVDs out, but maybe they've gotten a lot pickier about what they put out. This to me seems like a no brainer.
1: We need to support something like this because they get wind of, oh, they couldn't get more than 53 supporters for that. We're not going to make this.
2: I feel compelled to do a, a post on the blog so we can get it out there. As what's going on with me post Halloween, things are a bit quieter on the blog but I do have some stuff coming up this month. By the time this podcast comes out, the article will be uh, live. I have got an article on The Incredible Shrinking Man. I originally wrote this for another book project that ultimately didn't happen. So I've chosen to post the article on uh, my blogs. I want to tie it in with the Criterion 50% off sale. That should be up the week of the 8th. I uh, also plan on doing a, a post to uh, support Monsters by the Minute. Give some love towards uh, Mr. Mize. Other than that, not a lot of, of horror stuff. I am doing, kind of getting back into OTR Wednesdays leading up to Thanksgiving. I'm going to have some fun old-time radio Thanksgiving episodes, and that'll I'll carry that through Christmas as well. I did decide, a little sneak peek beyond, that the OTR Wednesdays, I... I kind of got away from that but i i want to get back to that in 2022 and so starting in january i'm going to be uh generally all i do is just offer up a link to these episodes that are out on youtube but i'm going to be doing the adventures of sherlock holmes with basil rathbone and then eventually tom conway nigel bruce playing dr watson opposite both actors so i'm going to be starting that on wednesday january 5th with the oldest Basil Rathbone, full-time radio broadcast, The Bruce Partington Plans from 1939. Uh, a lot of the episodes from the 40s are missing. Thankfully, I think it's the last season or two of Basil Rathbone's that's complete. I had fun doing that, and I kind of got away from doing OTR Wednesdays, so I'm going to be diving back and doing that again for the holiday season and then on into the first of the year. What about you? What's going on with you? I, you know, I'll, I'll stop right here and say... Going back to last month, you did a fantastic job with your Halloween countdown. I read every day. It was amazing. You covered a lot of fun films, and you busted your ass on that because <laughs> that you didn't do just – I took the easy way out. I just highlighted a film, threw up a fun quote. Here's a clip just highlighting some of my personal favorites, and I focused on just watching films. You watched the films and then wrote about everything you were watching – If you're out there listening and you haven't read that, do yourself a favor and go back and and read Jeff's Countdown to Halloween, 31 Days of Films that you normally wouldn't see in a person's Countdown to Halloween because he was going through his DVR, and it was a lot, a lot of fun, and I I appreciated it greatly. Oh, well, thank you.
1: Yeah, I got some momentum going there, and when we were doing nasty November, I decided I'm just going to keep going, so it's not going to be every day of the month, but I am Oh, if it goes, if I don't give up, there'll be something on one of my blogs every day of the month. Wednesdays won't be because that's DC Comic Guy. We're still on Eclipso and I have wrapped up his run in uh, House of Secrets. He did a couple one-offs in Justice League of America, Metal Men. Uh, This week, there's a couple of adventure comics that he's got a backup story in and then he starts a long run in Green Lantern. So by the time this airs, or is posted, will be into Green Lantern. And I don't know the nature of those. I don't know if he's a backup story or if he's woven into the story at that time, but we'll find out. And then Friday's TV Terror Guide is Back. We're still in the 1970 TV movies, 1974. And that kicked off this week with something called Savages with Andy Griffith. And that was... A lot of fun. He's not usually the bad guy, so it was kind of fun to see him. He, he's I've really bad in that this
2: movie. Yeah. Uh, I've been familiar with it for a while. I know that it's not it's not anti of Mayberry. I know that.
1: And then yeah, so the other days I'm going to fill in with more Nashi movies, kind of before we started recording, plotting it out, and. There's no way I'll do them all. I, I think there's enough to be a Nashi November next year and have something for every day. So I, I don't remember where I will end. I think it's going to be well before Beast and the Magic Sword. I'm going to keep going because I'm enjoying it.
2: I'd love to do a Nashi November again on the show. I think that'd be a, that's a fun tradition that we can do.
1: That's it. We've hinted at it several times. You want to officially state what we're doing next month so that Others can do their homework and watch the movies.
2: One of the best box sets released this year, in my opinion, I have not got every one, but based on on my knowledge and and what I do have in my grubby little hands, has been the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee, released by Severin. So we are going to have a wonderful Christopher Lee Christmas. Celebrate the season by uh, watching three of the movies from that box set. Castle of the Living Dead from 1964, which uh, I have fond memories of from my ute. Crypt of the Vampire from 64 and Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism from 67. Both of those will be first time viewings. We will be having Mr. Steve Turek. He knows more than James Whale, so he is going to be uh, diving into one of these movies with us. We haven't decided which one yet. He's leaving it up to us. Once we watch these three films, Jeff and I will uh, will make a decision on what we want to put him through. Maybe it'll be a fun experience and maybe it won't. I don't know. I haven't seen all of them. I don't know what says Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays more than, than the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. To me, it, uh, that rivals Christmas Vacation and It's a Wonderful Life.
1: And then just throwing this out there, January is our five-year anniversary. So we're looking to do something special. We're not sure what yet. If you've got any suggestions, let us know. We're we're toying with a couple ideas. I'm certain it'll be special no matter what we do.
2: It seems crazy that we've been doing this for five years. It seems like yesterday that we were gathered in your basement and talking about King Kong and wondering, was anybody gonna listen? And here we are almost
1: five. No wondering, is anyone? (laughs) No,
2: No, we know people are. We were very appreciative.
1: You can leave those ideas and suggestions on our Facebook group page or you can give us a call 616-649-2582 or email us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. All kinds of ways. If you have a sec, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate it. Richard, we're going out with another song from Count Valdemar Daninsky. This is from another one of their albums called Dreams. You can get it on Apple Music. And, you know, I chose this one because we often end the show talking about the world and the state it's in and how we need to go out and be safe and be happy and all that. This song is called Glass Half Full of Hope, because maybe it's a little pie in the sky to think that we're 100 percent optimistic and everything's going to be okay. But if we could all have a glass half full of hope, I think we're making some progress.
2: I'm ready to say the glass is full as we enter Whoa, the look at you. Season.
1: All right. I don't know We're what very... it's
2: full of, but it's full. <laughs> well,
1: wow. Everyone. Thank you for listening. Listen to or, or watch our, uh, our <laughs> watch, <it called?
2: laughs> uh, our video show. Our video show.
1: We have a YouTube channel and we do a podcast <laughs> companion. That's it. If we talked about a scene or anything in particular in one of these movies, go there. You will see those scenes as we talk about them and yes uh,
2: you'll see the puppet versions of Jeff and I that's it's a puppet show I'm, Ooh, that
1: would be fun <laughs> we could do the attack of the puppet people and something else and have Jeff and Richard puppets. I'm serious.
2: And actually that sounds hilarious. <laughs> we could get Tracy Morris to do little stuff, stuff with of the characters.
1: character with yes
2: and I oh, nice. Okay that that's an idea for 2022.
1: No <laughs> kidding no kidding <laughs> All right, everyone, take care. Enjoy your glass half full or full of hope. We'll see you next month. Take
2: care, everyone. Bye.